your attention, please. Hold on, hold on, airport voice. What? I need to make an announcement. But this is my job. And this is my podcast. I'll tell you when you can come back to take over for the intro. Okay, I'm going to Starbucks. And grand latte for me, please. Hello, guys. So why this preamble? Well, the episode you're about to listen to was recorded on January the 21st, 2020. And I'm recording this on February 27th, 2020, for a release hopefully tomorrow, February 28th, 2020. At the beginning of that episode, I'm asking my guests, yes, surprise, there are many guests, whether or not they had flu symptoms. And yes, you guessed it, I want to talk about that coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS-2, whatever you want to call it. And I feel compelled to take a few minutes, and I hope it's not going to be too long. I have this tendency of rambling to discuss this matter. Also, because I've had interactions with some of you, some of my friends as well, and people asking me, asking us whether or not they should fly, what they should do, and what our thoughts were. Thus, I'm hijacking hijacking is maybe not the right word in an aviation podcast. I'm uh, creating this unusual prelude to our recording to address this. And my apologies to my guests. You know, you can always skip this whole thing by using the chaptering system of your podcast app. I keep repeating you that, right? And in other words, think of this as a James Bond-like pre-credit sequence. Your name is Bond. James Bond. Airport voice. My name is Jason Bourne, if you want to call me something, and get back to your coffee now. Also, by the way, uh, you're again a different airport voice. I don't get it. So back to the topic. Obviously, first, I'm no epidemiologist. I'm no scientist. I'm no doctor. I'm no travel advisory. I will try to be as precise, as accurate as I can in what I'm going to say, but please accept my apologies for potential inexactitudes, especially to those of you who are scientists and doctors, please feel free to rebuke me. Please feel free to comment and reach out through our various uh, channels. Also, very importantly, it's a developing story. My thinking a week ago was different than the thinking I have today. It might be different in 12 hours by the time I release this. It might be different in one week by the time you might be listening to this. In a nutshell, we're not all going to die. It's not the zombie apocalypse, but I really believe this has somber ramifications for the travel industry. I want to start with what this story has led me to do. I mean, it's only me. Please feel free to tell me I'm crazy, but there you go. On February 10th, so more than two weeks ago, as I was about to leave to Dubai, I decided to cancel all my flights and stop traveling altogether for the time being. However, I decided to keep that flight to Dubai on that week. I decided to also keep the following Dubai trip that I had on the week of February 17th, so last week, but all the rest is canceled. I was supposed to go next week to New York, the week after in Tokyo, the week after in San Francisco, the week after in Sao Paulo, maybe Croatia, but that was honestly a long shot, and then Hanoi in Vietnam for the Grand Prix and a client. But of course, the Grand Prix was very appealing, especially because no matter if I'm not a big car guy, as I keep repeating on this podcast, I'm sorry to bore you with that. I kind of like my previous experience in the Grand Prix that was in 2010 in Singapore for the Singapore Grand Prix. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Payne for the VIP tickets. That was, that was awesome. And yes, all these travels that I could have discussed on this show, all the airlines that I would have taken to do these, well, they are gone. I will do them again. There's always more to come. And it kind of helps us into keeping our backlog of flights at the same level. <laughs> So the question is, am I afraid? No, 
No, I'm not. Really, I'm not. And I'm not trying to create any fear-mongering, but just telling you that of a canceled flight, it was a very personal decision, obviously influenced a lot by the fact that my travel profile is very heavily skewed towards Asia, but it's also the result of an early analysis of the situation. January 21st, the date at which we recorded, was actually when I started to alter my thinking about my future travels. On January 22nd, actually, and I've checked that on my various WhatsApp and other iMessage groups I'm part of with other app geeks, with airline industry professionals, with also simply friends. I already had called for all flights to and from China to be banned and not out of any anti-Chinese sentiment as you as you know me guys. I very quickly also began to think that large events should be canceled like Mobile World Congress. I've actually even said it on stage in Dubai before it was canceled that it would be canceled. And car shows like in Geneva that's happening in a few weeks and sport matches and big events. I'm still calling the Olympics to be canceled. I think they will be canceled maybe the year 2020. This doesn't make me an oracle, by the way. I'm no hero here, nor never have I been. I'm not boasting. I, I know it sounds like it. <laughs> it's mostly out of probability and a personal experience. So the, the personal experience was me a few years ago. I, I don't recall if I've ever talked about it on this podcast. Maybe I have. You guys are my memory. I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> um, so I was in Hong Kong. It was my last day there. I was perhaps doing some shopping, for sure, doing some photography. And at some point, I felt my left eye kind of twitchy and hitchy. And I was like, mm, no, whatever. I first brushed it off. I went to a pharmacy and I couldn't understand most of the stuff that they were selling me. So I just bought some sterilized gauze and said, I'm just going to clean my eye until I get back to London. And I will always remember, I was in Emirates first. Yes, it's me bragging. I was in Emirates first class going to Dubai from Hong Kong. And the look of the flight attendant when she greeted me says, are you right, sir? And she had an horrified look and I took my phone as a mirror with a selfie mode and looked at my eye, which was basically dissolving completely. It was pretty bad. And upon arriving in London, I went to the A&E, the emergency room. There's a specialized place for eye symptoms in Marlebone here in London. They did some tests. They're not very agreeable, to be honest. If you could avoid them, it would be better for you. And they told me I had a virus. And first of all, I was like completely gutsmacked. And then I asked you, but how do you think I got that virus? And she told me, well, you probably touch a doorknob and then you touch your eye. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, I, I had never really thought about that before it happened to me. So that virus was a little bit contagious. I had to take precautions, which leads me and us to today asking the following question. Is that virus that dangerous? No, but yes. And pardon me for being a bit professoral. Yes, you are. <laughs> Shut up, airport voice. So I told you my decision was taken out of personal experience, but also probability. At a very early stage of any type of event, we don't know exactly how it's going to roll out. We have a little bit of data. It's very noisy right now, but we have no real understanding of what's going to happen. There's no boilerplate answer to these kind of events. We have a few blueprints of past pandemics. Pan, by the way, comes from the Greek. Oh, yeah, I'm Greek. Uh, it says worldwide. Is it already worldwide? That's almost besides the point, and I'll get to that in a minute. The most important to me is that it is a multiplicative event. When I hear people saying, is it safe to go there and there, and they compare that to recreational activities like sports injuries or car accidents or mosquito bites, I'm like, you're just not getting it. I'm sorry to be very condescending right here, but these are not multiplicative events. If you have a car crash, that's it. 
there's one car crash. Maybe there's a pylon on the highway and it's really no fun and dramatic, but there's no further effect. With a virus, there's obviously a virality to it. I mean, it's pretty obvious for crying out loud. So then the other argument that we keep hearing is like, well, the seasonal flu, what we usually call the seasonal flu, kills actually more people. Ah, we are at the very early start of this outbreak. We don't know where it's going. And it's always impossible to detect whether or not a curve goes exponential at the very start of it. The data is noisy and it's too early to call. Imagine you're a trader in 2007, 2008, experiencing the financial crisis. That night when you're about to close your computer and you see a dip in the market, a dip in your numbers, and you're like, oh, I've seen this dip already in the past. Well, it's going to recover. And the next day you have the meltdown and you were not able to see it because it's near impossible to see that exponential curves. I'm not saying we are in one right now, but to simply say, oh, it's just like the seasonal flu is misleading. Today, and from the data that we currently have, I prefer myself to err on the very cautious side. It seems as this new virus, if you have it, you can infect more people. It seems as well, and that's very important, that you can be in about 15% of the cases. Carrying it, but being asymptomatic. Having no symptoms, but having it and giving it to others, which creates a whole lot of issues, of course, at airports, for instance. All these temperature monitoring systems that they have, especially in Asia after you know SARS and H1N1, etc., are completely useless if you don't have a fever. And they are leaflets now that leaflets are telling you what you should be doing. But I mean, you're going to brush them off. You know, I'm fine. I don't need any of this. Please take everything I'm saying here with a grain of salt. We're very early in the process of analyzing all this. It seems that if you had it, we're in a hospital, we're discharged, but then retested, you could still have it. 20%, and probably that's the most important, 20% of the cases are serious. So in 80% of the cases, it seems that you will have, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful by using it seems, it seems in 80% of the cases, you have flu type symptoms that do not require more than you staying at home just because you don't want to infect others. It's not dangerous for you. And even if you are in that 20% case, the death rate seems to be 2%. It's much higher than the seasonal flu. The seasonal flu that people want to compare it to is 0.1%. Well, this is 2%, so it's much higher, skewing larger mostly to older people. It seems that the very young are untouched and like the seasonal flu. And it seems that people like me, I'm 44, are largely okay. It doesn't seem either that the summer will give us a respite, which happens with the seasonal flu, but that's too early to call. Some people say the fact that the, the virus is active in Singapore, which is pretty warm, is a sign of that. But here I have no idea whether that is true or not. And obviously there's no vaccine. It will take at least 18 months. Even if you hear on the news that some labs have discovered a potential vaccine, they haven't gone into any type of clinical trial yet. It will take some time. Also, the numbers, are they reliable? I'm not here into conspiracy theories telling you the numbers. It's just that since we are in a very early phase of an outbreak, 
you have to look for it. If you have no thermometer, there's no fever, right? The patient has no fever. You have to be looking for it. Obviously, the numbers in Italy are rising because they're looking for it. The numbers in China are super high because they're looking for it. Indonesia supposedly has zero cases. Do you believe them? I'm not sure it's possible to believe them. Nothing against my friends in Indonesia. It's just that you have to be looking for it. You have to have the right protocol in place, which is obviously to another point, which is, uh, well... What are the protocols in place? How do you qualify somebody as having it? When do you start testing someone? There's been cases in Germany and in the US when people have been taken in the hospital but not tested because the policy in place was to not test for that case. And actually, they were in both instances carrying the virus. Again, I don't want you to freak out because of all this. I'm trying to understand the scale. And that's the thing, the scale. Even if the death rate was similar to the seasonal flu, it looks like that the scale of the number of people that will get it is much higher. Some serious, and I insist on serious, get informed by following serious scientists and health protectioners, you health authorities. And I can give you names if you want, the ones I'm following currently, directors of global health institutes and others. Some are saying that this virus could touch 40 to 70 percent of the world's population 40 to 70 percent of the two person death rate i mean just let it sink in 40 percent i really hope that those are way over the top and that we will fall somewhere way below this but i don't think we can simply ignore that at this stage and by the way, if we ignore, if it actually becomes big, then we have a problem. So we have to be precautious. At least that's my belief. And it's not me stopping traveling, just me that's going to change anything here, right? But at the same time, I know that everything I'm saying makes it sound that I will never move out of my house. <laughs> no. Look, me, I'll be fine. I think and that's maybe a gamble that I'll be in that 80% I just briefly mentioned. I should be fine. I will maybe even if I have it. And by the way, Maybe I already have it. I've been in flights many times from a super hub in Dubai, which doesn't have a lot of cases, but you never know. And I've been in large gatherings as well with the conferences. You know, I have a runny nose. Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe the people around me have it. And even they might even know it. There's been cases of people flying, knowingly having it because they'd rather be in quarantine and or taken care of in their home country, which is very human. It, it might be selfish, and I get the criticism, but it's very human to be doing that. So maybe I was surrounded with people that have it already. This still doesn't prevent me from flying. So what does? My concern is mostly short term. My concern is about not being locked down somewhere else, either because a country decides to go on lockdown. Japan this morning decided, for instance, to close all the schools and high schools, etc. It's having a route being closed. We've seen that over and over, starting with China, but other countries are now shutting down routes. It's having, you never know, an airport in lockdown. Having these types of situations, I'd rather not have them because decisions currently are made very hastily. Some countries are in containment mode. Some countries are already in mitigation mode, so they do not behave with coordination, and you never know what will happen. This is my concern. It's not out of panic. Again, not overly concerned if I'll have it. So if I were to still fly, do I trust an aircraft environment? Well, yeah. I don't have enough data to tell you that an aircraft environment is bad. 
I don't think we can make any type of relation with the cruise ships. The cruise ships industry is effed, which will please Alex because you know how much he likes them. Clearly, there are multiple cases of intense infection cases in such close environments. Is that the case in an aircraft? I don't know. I don't have that fear. And the food. Well, the food, the food. I mean, this is something from Will, Will Hunter, uh, episode 103. Well, there is apparently a case of being careful with the food in general. If somebody touches it, hasn't clean his or her hands, well, obviously, there might be a transmission path right there. Catering in airplanes usually, of course, has a good level of quality control. Some people say you should do your own food prep when you go on airplanes. I might not do it. Uh, if I were to take a flight. To be honest, it's an open question. Again, I overly trust catering services for the airline industry. We've seen, however, that some of the quality control in episode 103 with Will is not always there. So maybe avoid raw food. Really, I I feel bad saying this because I don't want to be fear-mongering, but you're not going to wipe the plain food clean with your wipes, aren't you? The toilets, I will admit, came through my mind, not because the toilets of an aircraft are particularly dirty. Although, well, you know, I was in Emirates first class. Yes, bragging again, Paul, I know. (laughs) Coming back from Dubai. And yeah, when you're in first class, there's an employee there, like, sterilizing the entire toilet every time after someone goes there, which I'm fully confident there's no issue there. However, I was late last year on a... Tap A330neo, I'll cover that in a future review, and I had to convince myself that the swimming pool I was in on on the floor of the toilet that was bordering between business class and economy class was actually water. This is not a shade to economy, it just means it was heavy footfall. Why am I saying this? We learned that the virus can also pass through human waste can survive for a limited time, but still survive over surfaces, apparently metallic surfaces overall. So is that safe? Eh, well, use wipes, be a little bit careful. Maybe not to the extent of this passenger that I've seen in the flight who was basically wiping and sterilizing the entire seat. She had wished she would have had a high-pressure water system for it. Uh, But yeah, wash your hands often, There's a World Health Organization video which is really well made about how you should wash your hands. We're not talking about moisturing your hands for two seconds after the bathroom. A good method is simply singing twice in your head, happy birthday, and you'll, you'll get to 30 seconds, which is already not too bad. Use hand sanitizers. I always have them with me anyway. It seems a lot of people actually think about that because the last time I was at Gatwick, they had run out of them. The mask... I think it's still useful, mandatory, I believe, if you're sick. I say it's useful because it creates this awareness of you touching your face. Coming back to the story I just said earlier about me touching my eye, well, maybe if you have the mask, you realize how many times you actually do it and you will maybe teach yourself not to do it and teach yourself to wash your hands every time you actually want to do it. Also, maybe, and that's not in the plane, but it's a good reason to take a flu shot, the the traditional flu shot, which is usually very good at uh, making you resistant to the current season flu. It will not protect you from that COVID-19, 
but it will protect you from the flu, so you're less likely to get flu-like symptoms that might worry you. It will keep you out of the ERs when you're maybe more likely actually to get that other virus you don't want to get. It will reduce the chances of you having a pre-existing condition if you are exposed to COVID-19, because again, this is, uh, if you have a pre-existing condition, that might actually worsen your case. And you will simply not be freaking out about any flu symptoms that you, you might have, and only will get checked if you really have symptoms that could be actually that new coronavirus, which will in turn lower the burden on the health system because the health system will be overstretched. I'm pretty sure they will be. They will have to go with so many people to the point that I believe they will have to make priority systems, who gets to the hospital, who waits at home, etc. You don't want to be overstretching the system by simply having the flu and keeping the beds for the people that actually really need it. Now the impact on the travel industry. I'm really not upbeat. I think it's a catastrophe. The air traffic in China is down basically 80%, which is a lot. We see planes flying empty. You've all seen the pictures. It's stunning. And a lot of the airlines going to and from China have canceled. The cancellations are starting uh, to Hong Kong as well. What does it mean for Chinese airlines? Well, is it a too big to fail case? Because HNA, which we discussed so many times in this podcast, who had a lot of financial difficulties already, is being broken up and taken over by the three state owned airline, Chinese Eastern, Southern, and Air China. Apparently, Hainan, the most famous of them all, will be taken by Air China. No idea whether or not the name will survive. And to Hong Kong, I believe Cathay Pacific is the company the most at risk to actually disappear on top of the political situation they had before. And I'm not sure in that case if China will create a too big to fail scenario similar to the one I just mentioned. Or maybe, and we've discussed this with Alex, they could force Cathay Pacific to be owned a lot more by our China. We'll see, but they are for me at risk. They've canceled a lot of routes. Just look at the pictures on the ground in Hong Kong airport. There are tons of uh, aircrafts parked there. They've asked 25,000 of their staff to take unpaid leave. They closed lounges at Hong Kong airport, including our, our beloved, the pier. The thing is, it's not only with China because with the outbreak visibly spreading, travel restrictions are spreading as well. We've seen stories. A Korean air flight landed in Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion, and all the South Korean passengers were refused entry as the country was deciding to ban all South Korean flights coming in. Singapore has canceled a lot of flights from Indonesia, not trusting that Indonesia has no case. The UAE has banned its citizens for traveling to Iran and Thailand. Saudi has shut down the border for five countries at least and is canceling religious gatherings. Bahrain had decided to ban all Emirates flights from landing until Emirates was itself banning countries. Uh, we've heard uh, repatriation flights in the US that were, you know, not in my backyard. You know, American people were tested positive to coronavirus landing back and having court orders for them not being accepted in counties, etc. Mongolia had routes that have been suspended. Lufthansa has planes that have been grounded. 
British Airways has cancelled all its flights to northern Italy, I think only Milan so far. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. I mean, and as well, there, there have been stories of flight attendants testing positive. There was this Korean air cabin crew that tested positive, I believe, landing in LAX. And now LAX, it's sanitizing itself every hour. I don't know how to do it, but imagine the cost of doing that. And Korean Air had to close offices next to Incheon because of the scare. They're releasing service on Singapore Airlines in order to avoid a lot of the contact between the crew and the passengers. There's no hotel service. There's no uh, after takeoff drink service. There's no reading material for the seat back pockets. There's no in-flight sales anymore. I mean, this is, you know, on and on and on. That's leading to United Airlines withdrawing their full year 2020 guidance. AirAsia is doing the same. Thai Airways executives are taking a pay cut because of that. IAG, the parent company of, of British Airways, Iberia, is also uh, saying they will provide an update on the financial performance uh, soon. IATA, the trade, the trade association for the airline industry, said a week ago that the cost would be $30 billion. I believe this is very conservative. I think this will go much higher than this. And now, compound effect, that multiplication I've, I've told you before. What happens for Boeing and Airbus? Boeing is already in a bad state with our max story. The Dreamliners lines were already reduced before this. If there's a massive slowdown, if all the airlines are suffering, who's going to buy aircrafts? How will Boeing recover? I mean, this is really a, a domino effect. And even for the aircraft that they're building, you know, with parts coming from all around the world, we know that just-in-time production lines and supply chains are heavily disrupted. Not only China, but other countries, factories closed, etc. And let's say it's another example of that multiplicative effect. If there's two weeks of suspension of a factory, it's not two weeks of delay for a plane. There's a lot of domino effects happening and suddenly you have massive delays in actually being able to build a plane, being able to deliver it to the customer, leading to even more issues for the airline in the end. I, I, I don't want to be the... I, I really, guys, I really, you know me, I I'm a positive guy. I don't want to be calling it like a massive disaster, but I think it will be much bigger than, than we think already with the elements we have. And we don't know when it's going to end. I know friends working in massive corporations. There's an oil company just below hundred thousand people full travel ban a bank i work with fifty thousand people full travel ban we're talking global travel ban commodities company hundred forty thousand people around the world travel ban these are all tickets that are not being sold this will make the airlines suffer and yes the jet fuel is lower that's a bit of a silver lining so it will offset a little bit of that downturn for a little while but for a little while only and then the big question, will the traveling public still travel or will they freak out? I mean, a friend of mine, Kami Highcams, is currently in South Africa. When he entered Namibia, every staff was wearing N95 masks, goggles, and medical gloves. The same in Zimbabwe. There were specific documents to be filled out for coronavirus. The Japanese tourists were stopped and pulled aside for a longer time than the others. When he came back to South Africa, there was actually military personnel dealing with the situation. This is all compounding the effect because you like, do I want to go through all this trouble of having to go through, I will need to be five hours early in the airport because of all the tests that have been taking. I don't know. I think I think I need to stop, guys. I'm, I'm sorry. I've been rambling for 25 minutes already and it's a bit disrespectful to the guests that are coming on in a, in a few minutes now because no matter what I said at the start, I said we're not all going to die. I, it feels like I make it sound we all are going to suffer something and it 
this is a disaster of epic proportions. I truly don't know. I hope I am overreacting and that this will blow over. I do not think this will blow over. Probably the reason I'm a bit passionate about this topic is that I was talking to people starting mid-January and everybody was brushing it off, giving me stupid excuses, not having thinking it through. The world now has woken up to it, at least partially. But think of this. There's no more pasta in shops in northern Italy. No more pasta. If there's no more pasta in shops in northern Italy, this is the end of the world. <laughs> this is actually the end of the world. Now, of course, this is the overreaction of people. But imagine, when did you last time hear about 50,000 people being in a state of lockdown with the military? This is not normal, which leads me to my last two bits here. I don't want to see more discrimination and racism coming out of this. You know, I've, I've heard people boycotting Chinese restaurants. So what, are you also going to boycott pizzerias now, right? Because Italy has been hit. And next is going to be what? I'm going to not hit burgers the day the US has been hit. I mean, this is completely stupid. But this goes further than this. There's been kids bullied here in the UK. And I'm sure stories are bound everywhere else of Asian-looking kids being bullied at school. I know kids are being cruel, but this is also their parents being overly stupid. We've heard this very stupid story about this crew on KLM. I, I get it. I always pile on KLM, but I mean, come on, this is warranted here. We added a sign in front of one of the lavatories in a flight coming from Incheon to Amsterdam when they basically forbade South Korean to use the lavatory. The thinking of the crew, probably fearful, fine, was, well, we don't want South Koreans because they might have the virus, so let's just segregate like back in days that we don't want to think about anymore. This is stupid. This shouldn't be happening. By the way, KLM did not really apologize. You guys suck when you apologize on this. Sorry for your KLM fans. Please feel free to bash me online for saying this. Um, please, no more of this stupid racism, stupid xenophobia, stupid discrimination. This is going to touch all of us. I hope that the numbers that gave, like the 20% being serious cases, the 2% of death rate, I hope that when now the virus hits more shores, these numbers go down. More preparedness will actually make us better at fighting all this, or maybe some populations have less risks of being touched by this than others. I don't know all this. Again, I'm not a scientist. But in the short term, and that was the concern which I started with, which is why I canceled my flights, I believe there will be more route closures, more airline suffering, more border closures, more hassles at the airport. This is not going to stop. I'm not actually be surprised if uh, by next week, some of the airlines will either completely stop or reduce their flights to and in Japan. You know, and you know my love for Japan, so the, you know that this is not said out of any type of grief against that country. It's just the reaction that we are in today. So maybe this is a new normal. It's going to make the world a bit more complex for a little while. Maybe we will learn to live with it. Maybe we'll have to learn to all be, for instance, like a lot of Asian countries, to have a mask when you're sick. We'll have to learn to keep washing our hands. We'll have to keep living with the virus. Or maybe I'm completely wrong and all this blows over. And maybe, maybe be better prepared next time it actually happens. Thank you for listening to my nonsense. Airport voice, you can come back and do your shtick. Okay. This is the last call, blah, 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 and music. Flight 105 to DCA. Who's that? What's DCA? I'm completely confused here. So first, 
Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. What's DCA? DCA is known under a lot of names. Ronald Reagan International Airport, National Airport, Reagan National Airport, Reagan Airport. <laughs> so why DCA? I'm not sure where the DCA comes from. I don't know where the code comes you, from. You didn't do your research, right? No, so, I clearly I'm, did not. I'm so disappointed. So guys, first of all, before I introduce the other people, because you hear them <laughs> laugh in the background, <laughs> this is a very different kind of episode. Our first trial, I know a lot of people would be jealous because yes, I didn't reach out to you to be there to do that here in London. But I wanted Elizabeth, whom you've heard a lot the name being uh, uttered on this podcast in past episodes to be with us because she's the first ever shame on us and shame on me the first ever female voice on this podcast yes. <laughs> glass ceiling shattered it's so good and the reason we chose ECA there's a second reason that comes in a minute but the reason is you've been living in DC yeah. for a long time I lived in DC for 16 years and DCA was my hometown airport for a very long time, along with Dulles and BWI. Am I allowed to say poor girl? No! 16 years in DC? <laughs> really? I love DC. I love London too, to be fair, which is where I live now. Yeah, you've relocated. Yes. We'll come to that when we're going to make the introduction, the proper introductions in a few. But as I said, I have two other people with me. Let's start with the one who's actually hosting us today, Ed Parsons, another name you guys have heard. How are you? Very well, and you're very welcome. I mean, you cannot look at this. I wish it was a camera. <laughs> we're in the, into some kind of spaceship here. We're hosted here at one of the offices of Google in London. You've heard, of course, the name Ed Parsons being uttered many, many times. He's the one who uncovered the reality of the divider of the 8 to 20. <laughs> <laughs> Flying Air Baltic. I will never live that down. The number of people that follow my Instagram said, why are you putting a picture of a divider in your Instagram feed? I had met already Elizabeth. You were not even in London. No, no. I had never met Ed. He just welcomed me at the door of this magnificent office earlier. You guys had never met? No, no. no, that's no. Funny. It's first we had such great chemistry I already. And, and our third guest star today is Dan, Dan Foster. We've, you've heard his name as well. I've chosen three listeners, three of the most engaged and longtime loyal listeners of this <laughs> podcast. I want it to be a trial. This is something we've always wanted to do with, with Alex. We've mentioned it a few times to try to do more of a live feeling of the podcast. This is not live. There's no public, trust me, because I didn't want to have that if it's a complete failure, but it doesn't seem to be one. Look at these guys. They're all excellent. And this is recorded the 21st of January 2020. This is episode 105. And the fun thing is that these guys haven't listened to episode 104 because it's not even edited yet. So I'm going them back to back. They have no idea about what we discuss with Doug in the previous episode, but that doesn't really matter. So as you understand, it's also going to be a slightly different episode because it's a test. I want to do more of these. At some point, I will do even live ones. We'll invite even more people. I want to apologize to Glucode because you're not here. I know you wanted to be here. Jez underscore K, I had also promised you that you'll be there. So you'll be for the next one. And a special mention to Mark, our pilot, Mark, whom you know, actually, Hello, Elizabeth, Mark. she's, she's, yes, she's smiling. Mark. Because Mark is actually the one that gave us the idea of doing this. He said during one of the recordings, or was it during a beer we had with Alex and him? He said, why don't we do one in a pub? And I said, yeah, why we never did that? So there you go. So first at Google, and I hope the first in many. Don't worry, Ed, not at Google. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> 
So maybe before I go into a little news to have a proper introduction this time, so ladies first, tell us who are you, Elizabeth? <laughs> oh, that's such a broad question. Who am I? So I am originally from New York City and grew up in the US, went to university in DC, which is how I ended up there. And worked in sort of a variety of different things, but I've mainly worked in museums and events and education. Prior to meeting Mark, who was very influential in my career decisions, deciding that I've always loved airplanes and I've always loved travel and aviation. And so about two years ago, maybe three years ago, I started sort of exploring a career change and decided that I would need to get a master's degree to do that. So coming to London was based off of getting a degree in tourism, which I did. And that was great. And so I moved here in 2018 and have been here ever since and have been a plane geek for my entire life. And you've graduated to that tourism. I have graduated, yes. I have yet to actually receive my diploma in the mail, but <laughs> it's done. Royal mail takes a little bit yeah, of time. Welcome to the yeah, UK sometimes. Exactly. And one of the things you do, because we mentioned it, so I can say it, you write for the Points Guy I UK. Do. Yep, I do write for the Points Guy UK, which has been great. And that sort of came about really organically. Actually, it came about through Instagram, um, <laughs> as things do now. I follow Brian Kelly, who's the head of the Points Guy on Instagram, and found out that they were opening a London office. It was the spring of my degree. I sent him a direct message on Instagram and I was just like, hey, I've worked in events, really love travel, have anything going on that I could help with? And uh, he wrote me back in about five minutes and gave me the email address of the guy who runs the UK office. And so it's kind of gone from there. But yeah, I've done a couple of articles for them, worked on a couple of projects and we'll see where it goes. I'm very interested because, you know, I don't really follow these. I don't know about you guys. I'll ask you in a minute. I don't really follow these bloggers who talk about credit cards because honestly, yeah. outside of the US, it's an almost impossible game, right? It is hard. Meaning, you know, the benefit for us is you cannot even open two credit cards and not having your credit score like completely slashed because you just did that. So, <laughs> But just... loyalty is still a thing here in the UK. Sure. So yeah. choosing what airline you're loyal to is very much a... Uh... Yeah, we'll have a little bit about that, actually, miles yeah. and less, as I say. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'll actually invite, it's uh, planned as well for one of these special episodes without Alex. We're thinking about you, Alex. I'll invite also a specialist in loyalty programs very soon, and we'll have a proper discussion about that. He, uh, probably he's going to try to convince me that uh, loyalty programs are all awesome, which I still doubt for some reason. Um, Ed, Google Maps. Ah, yes. I, I'm the Google Maps guy. That's, that's the way I introduce myself when I, when I talk to people. Yeah. It's the best introduction ever. I mean, it is. It's, it's, it works quite well, and I'm, I'm glad that everyone enjoys using it. I, I play a very small part in the cast of thousands that are responsible for, for Google Maps. But yeah, welcome to Google. I'm, I'm a Londoner, born in South London, grown up in London. I was mentioning to Paul earlier my my first memory, I think, kind of struggle to think of anything before this. My first memory was Concord flying over my house in Balham in, shows you how old I am, in about 1970, 1969, wow. I think. And at that time, it was the loudest thing I had ever heard. Of course. And, and from then on, you know, I was a, an aviation enthusiast and, and now an av geek. Once upon a time, it was an aviation enthusiast. Now you're an av geek. <laughs> and you told me that Concord was also a prototype, was not the actual... Oh, 
Oh yeah, this was much louder than the Concorde that you know you might have experienced in you know the nineties, the two thousands. Wow. Um, yeah, this was really really loud. Mm. And you know, I didn't remember at the time, but you know, looking back at history, you know, people wrote into the the newspapers and were on the television. It apparently was trying to get back to Farnborough for the air show. It couldn't get back to Farnborough. No it had to land at Heathrow, so it had to fly over London, which it hadn't done previously, and it was just amazing. But you know, that's been a big part of my life. You know, watching Concorde wherever it was. Dan, hello. Yes, I'm Dan. Paul, we met a few months ago at a, an Avgeek meetup ourselves for a, a particular travel app, App in the Air. App in the Air, exactly. The founder is actually lined up to also be on this podcast at some point. I know, Lucy, you keep sending email. Yes, he will be on the podcast, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, Paul, we met a, a couple of months ago and struck up a good few conversations about aviation and travel. And I've, I've been an avid listener to the podcast for a while. And I'm based in London myself, which is great as a traveler. It's such a good hub to get around the world and I've actually spent the last year pretty much kind of taking a bit of a break from my my regular day job as a consultant for a big consulting firm helping people to build apps and all sorts of stuff like that and just traveling so I went and had a great few months in in Japan last year which kind of yeah. reignited my love of travel and traveling around Japan is, is brilliant and seamless as I'm sure we'll go on to to discuss at length later but um yeah pleasure to be here honestly my pleasure guys for not only agreeing to do this but for actually all meeting you in one space this is really something I wanted to do and I want to do more because, I mean, you, you guys are listening, you all know that when an Av geek meets another Av geek, you can talk for hours. Yep. <laughs> it's you, true. you saw that in the episode we just released 104 that these guys haven't listened to yet because honestly with Doug, I, I think I could have done an episode for five hours, but people are already complaining like an hour and a half is too long, so we had to cut somewhere. Uh, no one has the flu, right? Not yet, no. Uh, yeah, are you not coming from Wuhan? <laughs> no. <laughs> This is quite a story. I mean, this is not the funniest to talk about, but it went from being just a story in the page 10 of newspapers. If anyone reads newspapers, of course, Ed is looking at me. What the hell are you talking about with using Google to read news now? To uh, being one of the biggest stories. Uh, yeah, airports in the US have already started implementing temperature measuring uh, measures. Measuring measures? Yeah, I say that. Of course, the airports in the region as well. Australia hasn't, but will by the time this podcast is being released. Did I say it already? Yeah, 21 of January 2020, and this will be released at our mid-Feb. So, Will on episode 103 was laughing that uh, when we were talking about the Bally Pigs, this is the beginning of the plot of a catastrophe movie. Well, we're actually right in the middle of it now. It's actually chapter two. Uh, well, let's see. So, I just wanted to make sure that I'm not going to have the flu going out of this um, fantastic, but still enclosed meeting room here in uh, Google <laughs> London and I hope you guys you also didn't travel in Yamaha musical instrument box to be here no no can't say we did that should be a film that will be a film very soon right that's I mean, just an amazing story I'm sure you guys all know about this story but this is Carlos Gons the now ex-CEO and chairman of uh, Nissan Renault one of the biggest automotive uh, groups in the world who escaped Japanese justice by being in a musical box in a private Learjet or something. I mean, it's not the topic of this podcast, but having Yamaha, the actual company that built this musical box, make a, yeah. an official announcement to say that, hmm, guys, you shouldn't be climbing into musical boxes. <laughs> like, this should be actually the hook of the movie, Ed. <laughs> well, I can imagine it was a particularly nice box. You know, I, I'm I can sure. Yeah, this is not your run-of-the-mill musical box. It's going to be, you know, so, m- musical the club-class bo- version of a musical <laughs> box. It's premium economy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's about the amount of legroom, that's for sure. Yeah. Musical walks on Earth. Have you guys ever flown in a private jet? I mean, you probably don't own a private jet, but we were lucky to be flying in one of these. Oh, you guys don't own one. No. no. <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth, no. no. No, I've never flown in one. Not yet. No. I have. I think I mentioned once in this podcast, uh, sadly, not a lot, because it's quite a different experience not having to go through security and everything. But maybe in a musical box at Ethro, they will actually let me pass by. I don't know. <laughs> we could have done Ethro for this episode. We decided not to because we've been doing it so many times. And I know that our international audience must be thinking enough about the UK. And probably a lot of people now should be thinking enough about the US because that's so many US Air Force in a row <laughs> we've never done that usually I rotate and we're in, again in the US. Uh, do you like Heathrow, guys, overall? I want to make sure that's all your home airport, right? Right it now, is. yeah. I, I, I guess we probably are just so familiar with it. We know its intricacies. We know the shortcuts. Yes. We know how it works. We know what, what doesn't work. And I guess, you know, we all watched the slow motion of it being redeveloped over the years. Mm -hmm. And it just it just seems to take so long. But but it's great, you know, if if you need to travel for business it's an amazing facility to have London Heathrow on your doorstep. You can travel anywhere. You're also like me, you're Southwest. I'm Southwest. Although over the last six months, I found myself, just because it's slightly cheaper sometimes, flying from Gatwick. Yeah. And, and, I, and I like Gatwick. And then mm -hmm. Lucy, everyone loves Lucy. Mm. I use London City when I get the opportunity. It makes sense. But probably 70% of my journeys are from, from Heathrow. What about you, Dan? I'm a big fan. Yeah. Oh, you're a fan? I, I like it. Yeah. I think growing up in Birmingham, up in the kind of the Midlands, it's quite far removed from a lot of the, the hub activity of, of Heathrow. So I think when I moved down to London, just popping into the airport the first time and seeing all these airlines from all around the world all connecting in now my hometown was really, I don't know, it, it really got me. And I really, I really yeah. enjoy that fact that Heathrow is really on the world stage when it comes to aviation as a hub. Um, and the fact that you can just fly anywhere is, is brilliant. Yeah, it is. I can relate to that for sure. I was about to say, because for you, you had two experiences. You were as a tourist first mm -hmm. and now as a Londoner. Welcome to London. As a Londoner. Is that the very different experience. It is, yeah. I mean, I think that I always, I loved Heathrow as a, as a tourist. Um, I've been coming to London since I was young and have always found that airport to be sort of energizing and just you really feel like you're in the middle of sort of the aviation world in a way that in upstate New York, I certainly did not feel. And <laughs> I wouldn't even say I felt it as much as I love DC in DC. So yeah, Heathrow definitely. And I should also add that I'm a Heathrow volunteer, oh, which yeah, is something that you can that. do. Hmm. Um, Tell us about that. What do big you do Big plug for Heathrow volunteers. That I hope they get a lot of applications from this. Um, so basically, it's, um, it's a program that they run through the airport authority. And you can apply and be accepted. And then basically what you do is you help people find their way through the airport. So you start out being landside and then assuming you have a UK passport, which I did not at the time, but assuming you do, then you can apply to get airside access. And basically you take passengers who need your help from door to seat on the plane. You can actually board aircraft and sort of everything in between. So helping people with luggage issues, helping them with, you know, um, collecting VAT, all the little issues that people come up with. Helping um, them sample the champagne in the first class lab. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never done that. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great program, and um, I definitely encourage anyone who's in London to check it out because they do a lot do of you, stuff. Do you guys also provide assistance for people with uh, reduced mobility? So do you oh, push the wheelchairs and stuff So like we that? are not allowed to push wheelchairs. Okay. Um, that is something that is reserved for the people that are actually Especially employed by Heathrow oh, and trained, more importantly, by Heathrow. We're not allowed to touch passports. We're not allowed to touch 
screens. So if people are having trouble pressing in their booking number, we are not allowed to do that. We have to ask the airline staff to do that. <laughs> oh, wow. There's a little bit of a hierarchy. Um, just a little. I'm guessing it's but also a liability issue. It's totally a liability. Right. Exactly. Um, because we're not trained on Air France's whatever, you know. That's so useful. I mean, you know, we're all travelers, great experience. But if you don't... So many people aren't. Heathrow is such a stressful place. It if is. You're not used Perfect. to it. Especially if you're connecting. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's it's quite something. It's not the easiest airport to connect. No. You know, I moved here eight years ago, almost nine. And before that, for me, I rarely did because it was not always the most convenient. But when I did connect through London, it was... Is not especially switching terminals okay. is not it was never my step. first choice either. i keep criticizing charles de gaulle for that but at least charles de gaulle when you're in like the big t2 you stay in the big t2 you might move from e to f but in london it's sometimes you're like uh, so where what one and you have there's an extra bus that runs only clockwise and something and you're like, <laughs> yeah but this is very yeah. cool that yeah you it's a really cool program do you have to commit to a minimum amount of days or something to, to do that it, or? I, I mean you are supposed to commit to a certain number of shifts they've been very flexible with me which I'm very thankful for because of my school schedule and then work and everything. A lot of the people that volunteer tend to be retired. And actually, it's amazing how many of them worked in aviation mm -hmm. and were sort of moved up through the ranks from baggage handling to working in head offices. And they just can't get enough. And so then they retire, take a year off and come back and volunteer. And it's, it's really cool to see. Is there an airport you actually hate? Because since I just mentioned Charles de Gaulle and you know my love for Frankfurt, uh, I'm going <laughs> to ask gonna, you I, right I, from Join you, Paul. Frankfurt is just a nightmare. <laughs> I'd say Milan is probably one of Which my Which one? MXP? Or yeah. 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 It's really bad. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I rarely connect there. So uh -huh. it's I've done it a few times to catch an Emirates flight to JFK because that's uh, how to get Emirates miles from. <laughs> but now there's Athens. So I prefer to go to Athens than to go to Milan. Yeah, MXP is not I've had some great. long connections there and it's... I think it's pretty tough. Yeah, there's not a lot of stuff to do. Actually. I don't hate Frankfurt, to be honest. I know that it gets a lot of... Yeah, we'll talk about yeah. your allegiance <laughs> to uh, Star Lion. I do like it. <laughs> Dan? The only one that comes to mind, not the airport from today, but not far located from that. I had a pretty rough experience through IAD last mm. year with a, a transit that kind of went wrong and then all the thunderstorms over on the East Coast last year and I was stuck there for about 12 hours. But that's not the airport's fault. Last time I was in IAD was, oh damn, 22 years ago. So my experience oh, of IAD is, is like, yeah, yeah, I've been several times to DC, but I would usually take the Acela from New yeah. York down there. Yeah. Is that a train? I'm not sure, however, because you compare that to what we have here or in Asia, the trains in the US, well, sorry, no. Elizabeth. It doesn't compare now, I, I'm but then I get, admit. Then I get the trains in the UK sometimes. <laughs> but apparently now there's a nonstop train from DC to New York. Oh, um, wow. Like an Acela service. I don't know if it started yet, but they just released something about that. Oh, cool. A few shout outs and reviews since we are uh, here. As I said in previous episodes, of course, when I'm doing this format, I cannot do too many shout outs and everything. Otherwise, these guys would be bored looking at me reading off my iPad. But one review on iTunes, five stars from Andrew JJSK from the US. Listening to Paul and Alex talk all things travel. Well, it's not Alex now anyway. Uh, and aviation always has me daydreaming about my next overseas adventure. I think a great addition to your website, that's the reason I wanted to mention you. I think a great addition to your website could be a section highlighting your current phone, apps, websites you use as tools when traveling or looking for flights. Keep up the work, you guys rock. Thank you a lot, Andrew. 
Yes, so when I did a switch over to the website, I did something as well. I went nuclear, I killed the blog, which had a lot of information because it was not kept. And we are here at Google, you know, if you if your content is not up to date, you don't appear in the results anymore. That's how <laughs> Google search works. So I gotta, but yeah, it's true. I When I find time, I want to just have a simple version of a few tips. Do you guys use any apps when you travel to do flight tracking? I'm a big fan of Flighty these days. Yeah. I think I think the the way they jumped on board with kind of the iOS 13 aesthetic and really this is me as an app designer coming out <laughs> by the way, sorry. But it's just beautiful and it just works and I'm about to hit the trigger and pay for the the premium one because I've got a few flights coming up, but it, it, it just works really well. So I'm a big fan of Flighty. I'm gonna make you jealous. I don't have to pay for it because I've been an alpha and then better user, so I have the old access. But yeah, it's hard because I just said earlier that I will have the app in the air founder as soon as the podcast, and now they will have to fight it out. But yeah, it's a very, very, very good app. It's very Solid. The one thing they lack, but they're implementing now, is the layovers feeling. Mm. Uh, this is not layovers as our show, but you don't really get a feeling of how long do you have in between flights and what does it require. Guys, if you haven't tried it, Flighty, Flighty app, that's the name you need to search on the App Store on Apple. I don't think there's an Android version. The best thing about it for me is the actual route your plane took once you land. You see what it was supposed to do and you have the entire flight plan where you actually flew over. So if it did a diversion, you have it and it's kept forever. I mean, forever, as long as they're around. It's a really great app. You guys, you, um, Ed, you use I used a- to use TripIt, but I, I don't use it as much. I just... It- I don't know, for whatever reason, I just kind of fell out of mm. of love with it. I tend now, to be honest, I just use the airline apps yeah. because I think you have to use the airline apps, both to book now increasingly and, and to sort of manage your flight. And then I'm a huge fan of, of Flight Radar 24. That's on my every device. And that reassurance of watching your inbound flight coming in is, is, <laughs> is so, so nice. Yeah, that's good. And I, I also, being the av geek that I am, I log my flights. There's a My Flight Radar 24, the website. Right allows you to log your flights and then over the year you can see how many miles you've done and so on. It's actually very well done, you're right. For some reason I prefer Plane Finder from a design perspective probably because it also went all iOS 13 when that was released. But yeah, I would say on my iPad, I have a, an iPad at home next to my computer. Basically it's Flight Radar 24 always on and I'm just looking at what's going on around. Of course Heathrow, not too far and Gatwick as well. For TripIt, yeah, the one reason I really now not dislike but have also kind of not abandoned it but using less is because it don't iterate at all. They've, since uh, SAP Conquer bought them, it's pretty much the same thing. The website is a disaster of UI because half of it has been kind of revamped and the other half hasn't. I was looking at it today. Yeah, I thought the same thing. You keep switching from a super old design from 1995 to something like, let's say, 2013, maybe. not. And it's bizarre. It seems that they're not putting the effort. Actually, I don't know if you guys were using Hipmunk, which was an app that was a service to look for flights, which was very quirky, designed everything. They got acquired by SAP Conquer to be integrated into TripIt around maybe two, three years ago. I can't recall exactly. And they're just kidding it. And that's for me kind of what goes behind. They don't really know what to do with it. Uh, SAP Conquer does probably so much money on, you know, corporate travel and everything that TripIt for them is just an addition for people to being able to track those, but not really a full-fledged product on its own. And that's why probably it's abandoned and that's why they're killing probably Hipmunk. The, the founders of Hipmunk tried a last-minute move to buy it back, but they were turned down by SAP Conquer. So Hipmunk sadly is going to disappear. You, Elizabeth, are you using any uh, apps in particular? So I actually, I've got TripIt 
it a long time ago when you guys recommended it on this podcast. Oh, shoot. We however, people actually listen to what we're saying. However, I was too cheap to pay for it. <laughs> so I just had the free version, which yeah. it was completely useless. Yeah. Completely the, yeah. useless. And you have now alternatives. Even... And it's not because we're at Google and I'm saying that, but even though you guys killed, it's not the fault of Ed, by the way, <laughs> the app, the Google travel app, the website is still very well done, especially if you use Gmail, it basically captures everything in there. It now even catches, because of course I'm starting all my research with Google flights, even has like, you have a potential trip because I was looking for it. I'm like, really? So mm-hmm. now I have like a myriad of trips of all my holidays that I could take this year and I have to pick up one. But yeah, you have free options that are very good. Actually, yeah. both Flighty and App in the Air, we just mentioned, you both have to pay to get at least notifications, whereas uh, Google, you don't. The only downside of Google, of course, is it's not an app. You have to have network, I'm yeah, guessing. it's part of the Google Assistant. It's sort of integrated. If you're, you know, you're part of the ecosystem, it, it sort of works. But, but, you know, talking about apps, you know, I think if you find an app that works for you, you should be willing to pay for it. And I, I yeah, think, you know, some, sure. some of these apps are actually, it's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes <laughs> to make them no, work. No, that's true. So, yeah. but I guess the use case is also, also very different depending on the amount of flights you're doing. You that's just it. said, Dan, that yeah. you are about to fly a lot or at least a little bit more. So for me, I'm, of course, flying not this month, as you know, guys, January, but it makes sense for me to pay for even for TripIt. Yeah, for uh, me at yeah. the time, TripIt, I was doing, I don't know, eight flights a year. Like, it just really did not make sense. But I agree with Ed on the the airline app. I have like a folder on my iPhone screen with like 20,000 of these, <laughs> which is the downside of that. But the upside is that you will have the most up-to-date information, at least for the US airlines. Some of the airlines' apps are not really well. Yeah. And it is interesting to look across the airlines. Yeah. You can see some of them you know, have obviously a common back end that they use. Yeah, clearly. But, but there is so much differentiation. You're right, the, the American, American Airlines app, actually, it's very, very good. British United is also is, great. Mm. Not so good. No. Um, but you get the sense there's so much opportunity for innovation in those apps. And, you know, the airlines all talk about, you know, wanting to be digital and, and understand the customer journey end to end. They could do so much with their apps if mm. they just concentrated on it a bit more. Yeah. A few more shout outs. First to Jonathan Vinod. The podcast is called Seat 1A. You have to listen to them. They were actually invited on episode 301 of Plane Talking UK. And I think Joff did say that one of the inspiration was listening to layovers. Thank you, guys. And just an aside, Carlos, who is the host of Plain Talking UK, I hope you didn't destroy the studio in Matt's absence. He will get that. Mathieu Guillaume Dulux sent us pics of him listening to layovers. I think he was in a Swiss aircraft, I'm not sure. Living Addis Abeba to Zurich. And yes, Mathieu, Zurich is very expensive. I think he had a I think he had a coffee for nine euros or something. He was like, I'm like, yeah, well, welcome to Switzerland. Ed, you know that. You've been to Zurich, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not cheap. <laughs> it's not cheap at all. Chris Radcliffe was congratulating Will. Will had a daughter, as you've heard in 103. His wife is called Kate. So Will and Kate. Another Will and Kate. And I just wanted to mention Chris because Chris has a podcast called Auto Movie. So I'm not into cars, as I keep repeating, but I'm into movies. So if you're into both, Auto Movie is an amazing podcast. They talk, of course, about this intersection between movies and cars. I was actually seeing Ford versus Ferrari. I don't know if you guys seen that movie. And I was at Changi 
in the movie theater because obviously they have one. And I had like an 18 hours layover. So that's what I did uh, next to the waterfall. It was pretty cool. So Chris, my favorite car chases are running, obviously, Billet and Mission Impossible. There you go. You can always now shout at me and I'll invite you on layovers to defend your point of view. <laughs> Peter Johnson at NASCAR Thornet on Twitter sent us a picture of his uh, dashboard of his car driving and listening to layovers. Guys, we don't want you to have any accidents when you listen. To, I'm not sure if it's very highly recommended to be listening to layovers whilst you're driving. At least eyes on the wheel or eyes on the yoke, guys, please. <laughs> and I need to address that I did a mistake. I'm the one actually writing the Twitter for layovers at lay underscore overs on Twitter. And I said, and I'm so stupid, I said that you have to be sat on the left side whilst landing at Heathrow. Of course not. You have to sit on the right side if you want to have a view of London. So really sorry, guys. So thank you to uh, Sab Aviation, Sergey and Bruce, and to all the others who kind of piled on me saying, <laughs> why are you talking about the left side? Actually, I just wanted all of you guys to sit on the left so I can have the right side <laughs> of me, right? But the views, guys, you agree. The right. views. Absolutely. It, it, it's easy. Posh. Port out, starboard home. It's always been the case for Heathrow. That's it. Why one thing I'm not looking forward if they actually change the landing path. I mean, one would be yeah. that they will be over flying over my home again. That's for 10 years in the future, whenever they actually do the runway number three, which by the look of things could be like in 2070. That would be the sad thing to have not have this view because it's the best view possible. I, know, I flew in last night and it was just stunning. You know, the, the weather here has been so clear. It yeah. was just amazing. Cold, but super clear. Yeah. So I asked you earlier if you had ever traveled in a private jet. So there's your chance. You have to move to Mexico to do that. The president of Mexico had ordered a Dreamliner, a 787. And, you know, Mexico is not keen to spend a lot of money. And I get it. They stopped the construction of the new airport after that referendum. They don't know what to do with it, that Dreamliner. They tried to sell it, but they couldn't find an owner, somebody agreeing to buy it. So they will do a raffle for $27, I think, if I remember correctly, probably millions of tickets, $27. You have a shot of actually being the proud owner of a Dreamliner 787. Wow. And the president is okay to throw in the cost of two years of maintenance if you don't have the capacity and the wallets to pay for it. So there you go. I mean, uh, how would that be practical? To <laughs> fuel it too, right? That's the landing and, and land it somewhere, yeah. I have a friend who has a yacht. Yeah, that kind of friend. And he tells me, Paul, the problem is not the yacht, is the crew and, like Everything you said, the else. fuel and mm. the, where to park it. And yeah. so I'm not even sure that even if the president throws in maintenance, that's, you know, throws some fuel. And we at Layovers will be very happy to buy it and actually fly all these I mean, guys. I would put $27 in for that, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> You've all flown the Dreamliner? Yeah. No, oh, this is a proper AF geeks. So maybe well, I'm not the Dash 10, Dash 8, Dash 9, not the Dash 10 yet. You clearly see it's a little bit bigger, but that's it. There's no much difference. No, I, I was, I, to be honest, like I was it? disappointed. It was so much you know, fuss about you know, lower air pressure, you know, greater humidity. And yes, I suppose it, it's nicer than flying a, a 747 or a, a 777, but actually wasn't that wow. big a difference. I prefer the A350. That, that's my favorite at the moment. Me too. Yeah. But I will still, I will still appreciate a, a Dreamliner. It's interesting. You're the first one who doesn't, yeah. not, no, doesn't appreciate it, but I mean, is not enthralled by it. No. I mean, the big windows obviously are nice because, you know, mm -hmm. I, I always pick a window seat and, you know, look out and that, that's great. But actually, if you think, you know, the, the passenger experience, I don't think is, 
is that much better. And I think you know, part of the problem was the airlines all stuck so many seats in the back, especially yeah. at the back. Yeah. It's it. it's not comfortable. Yeah, I'm I'm with Ed on that one, I have to say. I I was expecting to be much more wowed by it than I was the first time I flew it and even subsequent times. It wasn't what you... No, I mean, it. it you know, I, I agree. The windows are amazing and you do notice that as soon as you walk in. But as far as the, the air and the jet lag and all of that, I... I would be hard pressed to notice a difference. I, I, I think, sorry, then I think there is a bit of an overpromise for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, as in, you know, like a five yeah. percent difference in humidity will actually change if if you're stuck in like the last row of the aircraft. You're not still going to be tired. You're still going to be cramped. Yeah, I don't know. I just uh, yeah. probably the difference at three fifty is wider. It is, as in mm-hmm. the three twenty is wider than the seven three seven. Sorry, American friends, is nothing to do between choosing one <laughs> or the other. Is that when you have wider, if it's three three on a three twenty or on a 737, well, there's more room in a 320, end of the story. Although apparently um, Lufthansa stopped selling the last two seats of the 320 Neo. There were seats that you shouldn't have under any circumstances booked because it even less leg room than the others. But apparently there's a problem with um, <laughs> the center of gravity of the aircraft. So that's they stopped selling them. I, yeah, not only Boeing has issues, even uh, Airbus has one. So Dan, have you flown the Dreamliner? Yeah, I- I'm quite a big fan. But maybe Good. just because it was such a big upgrade over kind of the, the banged up old things we fly around Europe sometimes. So for <laughs> me, that was, that was quite an experience. And I think, as we said, that seeing those huge windows when I first jumped into the window seat, I was like, wow, okay, this is nice. And I did feel like the jet lag was a little bit less. And I don't know whether that's just the placebo effect and I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid, but I felt <laughs> like it, it did have somewhat of an effect on me. I don't know. We just heard Ed talking about his favorite aircraft. Which one is your f- Currently, oh. there's two because <sighs> the, the question, of course, can open. It's kind Painful of warm. Painful question. Yeah. There's like, what's your favorite currently to probably travel on? And that's for me, clearly the 350, but can also be what is your favorite aircraft in general? Maybe because as a kid, you saw it, maybe Maybe because you love to see it, maybe because you have good memories of flying it. So, Ed, since you started with your favorite current aircraft for 50, what oh, is... Oh, it's, it's a no-brainer, Concorde. I flew Concorde once. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And it was oh, wow. the most amazing experience of my life. I, it, it was in 2003, just before it was retired by British Airways, and I managed to get enough air miles, as they were then, use all of them on a, a one-way trip from New York back to London. It was an amazing wow. experience. I would have That's done the cool. same. I would have like really like millions of miles to fly on this thing yeah. once. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, and I, you know, I describe it to people. It's sort of the difference between driving in a normal saloon car and driving in a sports car. You know, in a sports car, you feel every bump and you feel connected to the road. Somehow, it, it felt the same in Concorde. You felt every little bump as it took off and pushed back into the seat. And it was just... Extraordinary. The seats were really narrow, right? It was really narrow and tiny little windows. We were talking about the the Dreamliner windows. I think Concorde's windows were probably an eighth of the size. (laughs) It was literally not much bigger than a playing card. Not much bigger than the old IFE from BA, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I say old, it's still in Flyer 747 and you'll experience it. Dad, have you flown the Concorde? (laughs) I can't say I have, unfortunately. I'm not sure I was... Not sure I was around for flying that much, <laughs> and when it was uh, when it was still in service. I think for me right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna pile on with the A350. I, I really enjoy 
I really enjoy that plane. I've been lucky enough to fly on Qatar's A350 in Q Suite, which was incredible. Yeah, and just added to how incredible the plane was itself. And I think all time, I actually still really enjoy the A380, which I guess you don't see so much of now. But I think my first time stepping on board, even in economy on the Emirates A380, was just like, wow, this is this is big. And I quite like the smoothness of traveling something that big. It feels almost like the world's moving around you rather than you going through it there's something really nice about it. i do agree with that actually i was looking at my stats since ed mentioned the stats earlier i'm also someone who records everything and also the tail number and everything because i've flown so much emirates and i promise you guys we're not going to talk about emirates in this episode because every time i do i get like hate mail of people poly enough about your emirates but because i've been a long time flyer with them probably 11 years i was looking at the stats and in terms of the number of miles done with an aircraft it's actually the 380 just over the 777 because i flew so many times emirates that I flew the 380. And you're absolutely right, Dan. It's such a bliss to be flying in such an aircraft. I'm really sad to see it go. I keep saying it, but yeah. And you? All-time favorite aircraft, hands down, is the 747. Yeah. I mean, I just... There's no, there's just no beating <laughs> that for me. That to me is the epitome of international I air agree. travel. It is air travel really in my mind. And I still, I, I love flying on it. I think that obviously technology has improved a bit since the original ones came out, but I do love the 747. I think to fly on, I have not flown on the A350, full disclosure. So I can't say maybe that's amazing. I would love to do it. But I think that the A380 has got to be the most comfortable flight that you can get. I mean, even in economy, upper deck, just so mm. much room and those oh, buckets side, on yeah. the side. Yeah, I mean, storage, you just yeah. don't find that on anything else. And I've flown the A380 on a few different airlines. And I think that across the board, it's all it's all lovely. It's sad, isn't it? From a passenger experience point of view. Exactly. Hands down, the A380 mm. wins. Take yeah. the Emirates. I think Emirates took the opportunity and said, right, we'll design a product for this aircraft. Where I think many other airlines just said, well... You know, I think British Airways treats their A380s to triple sevens in formation. You know, <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> but but if you take make the most of it, it is an amazing experience. Oh, it is. It's great. It is. Yeah. And I would also just give a small shout out to the small regional jets. Like <laughs> I love an Embraer one seven five or some of those little guys that just pop around the east coast of the U.S. That is the type of plane that I have flown by far the most on. And some of those are great, and you really feel like the connection with flying. Dan, I didn't ask you, is there such a plane that represents the epitome of flying? I think the 747 as well, just the iconic, the shape of the thing, you know, it, it's it's unique and, and always stood out to me when I was playing, you know, Flight Simulator back in the day as a kid. <laughs> Definitely still playing it. Um, but there's something about that, the shape of it going through the sky and, it, and the fact that it, it kind of set off this global aviation revolution many years ago, I think sticks in my mind as one of those iconic aircraft. It's still a pleasure to fly. Like, like you just said, Ed, feeling the entire thing moving. I mean, of course, I'd rather have a 380 when I travel a lot for business and whatever, but 747, even the Dash 8, because I've done it with uh, Lufthansa and also with Korean, it still kind of moves around and you can feel every bit yeah. of it. And that kind of, yeah, I flew, as I said in a previous episode, I also recently the 757, and that's also an aircraft when you feel mm. pretty much yeah. everything happening. And as an Avgeek, this is something that I kind of like. It's almost like a, like you said, like a sports car, like an old sports car. But, but yeah, the 747, actually, I said it. Now, I can say it because most of you have listened to the Travel One podcast when I reveal what was my first travel memory. It was not a flight I was on, but when I was five years old, I was next to Cap Canaveral. The road was backed up. We all stepped out thinking there was an accident in front of us. And actually, no, it was 
one of the space shuttles landing on top of a 747. And that's my first thing that I remember of wow. seeing a 747. And since then, the 747, I can't beat that. Talking about space, I'm moving across. I had like a... Guys, I had like lots of notes here, not knowing if we would actually follow any of this and actually not following at all what is being said. I'm just going with the flow. Since uh, you just mentioned, Elizabeth, the storage, have you guys, I know it's one of the competitors of the points, guys, I'm so sorry. Have you, have you guys followed the story by Gilbert on God Save the Points about the 350 from BA and all the spat he's got? Mm. I have you, not followed that, no, please So basically, me. he's saying, and I don't know whether that's right or not, BA, of course, PR will say it's not, but he's saying that when BA ordered the 350, the way they were fitted, they basically put a lot of seats, like you just said to Ed. And we know PA is capable of that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't put a lot of space in the galleys for the crew, actually, including food. And that was also, to be fair with BA, that was in a time when everybody in the industry thought that meals would not disappear, but being reduced, reduced. And actually, the trend went the other way around. People are re-adding food. And According to, to Gilbert, God save the points, the reason we're not still seeing the 350 on really long routes with BA is because they don't have the room, they don't have the space for a second meal. Really? <laughs> and they, they are struggling with that. I don't know whether that's true or not, but you know what? It's plausible. I think so. And I think, I'm not sure where I read it, but I think they've removed the crew rest as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the flight crew are meant to, I suppose, take a spare first class seat, which doesn't seem to be particularly... Well, no, the A50 doesn't have first class seat, so a oh. spare club class seat. Maybe that they they never really thought that they would use it for long haul. I don't know. I think they will have to see some kind of retrofit. So the 351,000 that they have was announced for Tokyo, I think, this summer for exactly 30 seconds before they removed it from the planning. There's something there. I, I don't know exactly, but there's probably uh, uh, something there. So... Uh, Ed, let's keep talking about aircrafts, why not? Uh, you flew the 220, is that one you like? The C-Series, X-C-Series. See, I, I think the first time I flew it, it was a C-Series, and then it was an A220. It's excellent. I think it's got the modern feel of an A350, mm. plus that small regional jet yeah. feel as well. So yeah. I think it's it's the perfect combination. I think it's an excellent aircraft. A real have you big guys fan. I have it? not, no. Yeah, I think I flew it once. Are they are they flying it from Lucy these they days? Do, they are flying from Lucy on Swiss. On Swiss. I think I took it yes, to Zurich. Yes, yeah, yes. A, of years ago. a friend of mine, Matteo, sorry, Matteo, I have to say it. You will hate me. I'm not saying your last name. Was, was a few days ago flying it. It was very early in the morning, Matteo. I know you were very tired. And he's like, oh, what's going on? There's a 320 with 32. I'm like, no, no, it's not a 320. It's a 220. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> he showed me, by the way, for those who are flying Swiss, that Swiss, for the longest time, was still calling it C-Series because they were waiting for the paper certificate to switch over the name. That just happened. So now, actually, for Swiss, it's actually called uh, the 220. I had a story, actually. I was flying Swiss a few months ago. I really love the 220, and that's not going to be something that is very favorable to the 220, but it, uh, it was a 300 series. that was flying from Warsaw to uh, Zurich. It was, a, I think, a 8 p.m. flight. There's a little bit of delay, fine. Then it adds up, adds up, adds up. And then we kind of board at 9 p.m., which is kind of okay, but Zurich runway closes at 11.30. So, and the flight is actually one hour and 20 minutes, whatever. So it starts to be very, very close. And we get into the aircraft. It's only powers out, completely out, completely out. Pilot comes on the PA says, I'm going to try to kind of restart the thing. He restarts the thing and again, it goes out. 
We wait five more minutes and then it says, regulations force me to ask you to all step out of the plane because battery power is not high enough. So I need to push the batteries from external power without any passengers. So we all step out, which is a mess. Warsaw didn't know how to handle this. You know, like how many people can fit in a 220, 300, maybe like 140 people I gather. And it was a full flight. Imagine going to a small gate. This is the size of this room. Guys, you're not seeing the room, but fits maybe 20, 30 people very, very close to each other. So that was pretty much the size of the gate. And they wanted 150 people to sit there. So people kind of start jumping over the cords and whatever. And Warsaw staff got super panicky about because obviously they want you to be there to kind of reboard the flight as soon as we can to not miss that deadline from uh, Zurich airport. So we wait 20 minutes and then and that was really cool. I don't know if you've experienced that. The pilot actually came at the gate and said, okay guys, I've asked for an extension in Zurich. We have 15 more minutes. So I will ask you, you have literally seven minutes to enter board and we have to be ready to take off. That kind of made everybody work together because everything was super fast. We were ready. We're like, yes, we're going to make it, going to make it. He presses some random button, boom, the power is out again. <laughs> Apparently, it happens a lot. Is it just Swiss flying them at the moment? Air Baltic, which uh, Ed was able to fly. What was that? Very good, actually. I mean, I think it was probably at least comparable, if maybe not slightly better than Swiss. I, you know, I, I have hopes vaguely that British Airways would buy them instead of more Embraers for Lucy, mm. but I think Embraers are their thing. Yeah, a lot of companies have ordered the 220. Of course, in the US, it's Delta, and there's others in Europe, in, in Asia, but not BA. We were talking about memories of flying. Do you think that a particular aircraft or particular airline has a scent? Ooh. Yeah, because, you know, we have In these kind way. of childhood... <laughs> 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 because we have these childhood memories, you know, linked to, I don't know, your mom baking something or maybe your uncle doing barbecue, whatever. I'm going through all the cliches possible right here. <laughs> the Swiss, since I was just mentioning, Swiss is launching a scent. Oh, I'm not, it's not a perfume. I mean, it's, it is a perfume. You cannot buy it for yourself. <laughs> Bear with me with that marketing BS. Passengers have to live the flight experience with all their senses. And so from checking to deplaning, there will be a natural, discreet and subtle scent. Well, I hope so. It's going to be subtle, discreet and natural. <laughs> and apparently it's already there. The scent of the wet tissues you get at the beginning uh, is okay, already that yeah. scent. But they want to... I guess gonna put it Just everywhere like disperse it in up i'm cabin. not entirely sure about that i think i struggle to compete with kerosene that's a pretty strange <laughs> <thing. laughs> have you guys been to the twa hotel i asked every no. person i've stayed oh it no way awesome uh, it was amazing so uh, you just triggered that to me because people say that when you are on the pool at the top you kind of smell a little bit of kerosene is that right you can smell the kerosene it's a you know it's a small pool um, but it's very nice you know you can there's a bar you can get food up there and you do smell the kerosene you're literally 150 meters away from some airliners it's been so well done and it's such a beautiful building they've done an amazing job i really have heard hardly any complaints about it i mean everyone i know that's been just absolutely loves it yeah. and it's, it's quite reasonable you know it's an airport hotel so it's never going to be particularly cheap but its location is is fantastic at jfk and it's a real experience you mentioned earlier, Elizabeth, that uh, you were helping passengers with their VAT mm. at Heathrow. Is that still possible? Have you seen that Travelex? Mm. The operator that allows you to change currency, and they also have VAT services. They've been ransomed, some ransomware on the 1st of January, was it or something? Or it was around the new year, certainly. They are still offline, and many airports still cannot access the system. So if you actually exchange currency in an airport, wow. for those who have it, they do it by hand. It's crazy. Those wow. poor staff. Where 
were you hit by the BA hack? And... I was I, actually. My whole family was hit by the BA hack, oh, wow. and we all ended up getting new credit cards. But we've not, unlike Alex, we haven't chased them yet. But, <laughs> It's just not worth the hassle, I don't think. Talking about security, I'm just going to jump and No, I'm not going to criticize it because we're at Google. Do you guys use Google Home or Alexa? I do not, no. <laughs> I have an A-L-E-X-A. I've told you guys <laughs> it doesn't trigger it to anyone listening at home. But yes, I have one. Because American Airlines, they're running it for customer service at desks in order to have the translation services. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea, actually. It is cool. And it does, the translation does work remarkably well. It is a bit like living in the future, talking to a machine and it talking on your behalf. It's amazing. And I, I, I'm a big proponent of this kind of idea of ubiquitous computing, these devices around us being the interface that we use rather than the phones that we carry. So I think, I think it will come. It's early adopter territory at this point in time, definitely. But, but it is the future for sure. Along with maps, I would say these translation services are for me the best use cases, especially when you travel. Either type or talk to Google Translate, and it works yeah, very I mean, well. It does work. For me, the, the thing that's most useful is, is taking a picture of a sign and getting that translated oh, yeah. for mm. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I, I think in many cases, these are, are not things we're used to. It's, it's not doesn't seem as natural. You know, using a map on your phone is quite natural. We've, we've been used to using maps for thousands of years. Having a, a device translate for us is, is still a bit unusual, I think. And it, it will take a while for us to become confident in doing that. But, it, but it, it does mean that travel is, again, as you said, one of those things that suddenly opens up whole new places that perhaps we weren't confident on traveling to previously. Well, now we might. I love that. Were you lost when you were in Japan, Dan? Or? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've been struggling to try and learn the language for a couple of years now, but Google Maps and Translate got me through some sticky situations. Yeah, so I, I owe a lot of my trip and the successes of that trip to those great apps. The first night I ever stayed in Tokyo in my life, I thought I was buying spaghetti, tomato sauce, and I ended up with barbecue sauce. <laughs> uh, Ed, since we're on science fiction, can you tell me about that uh, robot barista? They are. <laughs> so that that was that was a quite an experience. So as probably many of us as frequent travelers, I got to the airport a little bit early. This was in where was it? San Jose, the bottom of Silicon Valley. I was kind of wandering around, and in a relatively dark recess, not being used particularly much, there is a a robot barista that will make you a coffee live. So you put your your selection into an iPad or a similar tablet-like device. And you, know, you choose the sort of coffee you want, how strong you want it to be, swipe your credit card, and it looks like a sort of proper industrial robot then goes off and, and makes your cup of coffee. Uh, Pretty genius. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how much more useful it is than a conventional coffee machine. <laughs> but uh, it was amazing. And it was so Silicon Valley there yeah. to have a, you know, a robot making you barista-grade coffee. It was amazing. But how did it taste? Machine coffee. To be yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, hey, you know, it's got a Chick-fil-A and a barista coffee machine. What more do you want? That sounds <laughs> ideal. Yeah. So I've asked you what was your favorite aircraft. I haven't asked you what's your favorite or maybe least favorite. You can do both. Airline. Maybe start by saying which one you do fly the most. Well, my most flown over the course of my life. It's got to be American. I mean, maybe Delta and United get up there, but I think overall it was American. My mom is a very loyal American Airlines flyer. And so as a kid, she always chose that for us whenever we flew. So I think that lifespan, it's been American. For me as an adult choosing what to fly, I love Lufthansa. I know it's controversial. <laughs> I knock on wood, legitimately have never had a bad experience with them. Every time I have flown with them, 
It has been smooth. It has been comfortable. It's been fairly well organized, although I think that any disorganization came more from Frankfurt Airport than it came from Lufthansa. <laughs> um, I think their aircraft are lovely. I just, I, I'm a huge fan. Lufthansa, the big advantage is that they're super consistent. Yeah. It's like, I have a hard time falling in love with them, as in with the brand or with, I mean, I have the shoes. They're super cool. You know, the, 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 the Adidas that they came out with for, uh, I found it on eBay, you know, the crew ones. But I don't think I ever had a bad experience. So that's what you would choose. Right. I mean, all things for. being equal and, and obviously flying through Frankfurt's not always my first choice, but, um, I think that I think they're fantastic. I really do. You guys? I've been lucky enough to to travel over to Asia quite a lot recently, both on kind of leisure trips last year and also with work over to Hong Kong and Singapore a few times. And I always find myself jumping for cafe. There's something about the pristine, kind of clean nature of the service and the experience on board which i always really enjoy i was quite lucky to fly the a350 last year out of out of gatwick actually um deliberately chose gatwick because of I that the same yeah because of the triple seven out of Heathrow. yeah exactly exactly so i think cafe for me is pretty much up there and i think in terms of frequency being being based in london these days it tends to be ba don't say that with a sad face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not as much of a, a downer and ba as, as some others are but it, Cafe is definitely up there. I might actually preempt what uh, Ed will say, but obviously we'll fly a lot BA, so obviously we might be sometimes a bit more critical because when you fly, let's say, 50 times a year with them, the chances are you'll have a bad experience at some point. If you fly three times a year with Qatar Airways, and the three times are amazing, they'll say this is the most amazing airline in the world. And you might actually have, I've had actually in the past, bad experience with Qatar as well. Ed? I know, I very much agree. And I think the problem with British Airways is, is that they're the opposite of Lufthansa. They, they are so inconsistent. <laughs> Sometimes you can have the most ex- amazing experience. And their yeah. yeah. their best cabin crew are literally the best cabin crew on the planet. I agree. They're, they're amazing. And other times, it's just complete chaos. Mm-hmm. And and you never know, you never know which way it's going to go. And 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 I think, yeah, Paul, you're right. You know, we we fly them a lot, so we see both ends of that that sort of distribution curve. But yeah, mostly they're okay. And I think you know that's that's the reason that we do so. I you know my favourite probably would be Qatar. I think they just go over the top in terms of their level of service. They have a modern fleet, you know, great facilities, and they they innovate much more than most of the other airlines. And I, and I think that's a real good sign of a, an airline that's that's trying hard. Whether their business model will be successful long term, who knows? But yeah, Qatar would be my favourite. And it's not exactly the same thing. Is there an airline that you hate? Or maybe I'm going to ask it differently Pick because a US that, that, because that, that would be that, that's too harsh. Can you <laughs> can you maybe tell me if there's one bad experience that's really going to stands out? No, actually, I mean I don't think I've ever had a really terrible experience. You know, I I always approach this trying to be you know as relaxed and you know as long as I get there safely, I'm I'm okay. And if the experience you know is suboptimal, well, you know I'm there safety and safely and that that's okay. Part of me. <sighs> This sounds bad, I, I know as I'm saying it. Part of me dislikes Ryanair just because of the impact that they've had on the airline industry. It's mm-hmm. been great that they've allowed, you know, loads and loads of people to travel because, you know, it's it's reduced the cost to travel. But it's also removed any of the glamour that was once part of air travel. It <laughs> is literally you are getting on a bus and you pay for absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that the impact that that has had on on some of the you know the bigger airlines hasn't been great to the traveling public. Yeah, I think to your point, you can't really foresee a situation where you know having seen the glamour of the TWA hotel, you'd also see that <laughs> the Ryanair hotel. It, it maybe doesn't have quite the same level of. Uh, sophistication to it i think to your point i mean ryanair wouldn't be one of my favorite airlines to fly but i do fly it occasionally and sometimes it you know it it, it does the job and it gets you there and it and it's cheap and more often than not they get you there on time i don't think there are many that i would actually really turn my nose up at i'd heard a lot of bad things about united through, <laughs> through various sources and not I, us, not no us, no of not course never, not never. um but i ended up flying with them with them this year and and other than quite a quite a long layover due to some some weather issues i found it was quite pleasant so that was the only one I, th- I thought I might have had to mention but no it was actually alright is that your favourite or worst? well no actually I think that my my least favourite or the one that I've had the most bad experiences with I have no no problem saying because they don't exist anymore is US Air oh wow yeah I remember which yeah they were just I mean they were consistently bad <laughs> like <laughs> it was the rare instance where something went on time or you had a real moment of nice pleasant service um, or anybody doing anything out of the way for you. And I used to fly them quite a lot, and they just were terrible. So I have no problem saying that. They're gone. They're done. They're acquired. <laughs> a smart answer, actually. <laughs> I know it's hard to jump because probably it was actually not a bad experience, but I know you've flown from London South End. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not exaggerate. Yes. It's not London. That's uh, yeah. somewhere else. How was that? So I really like South End Airport. Wow. Big fan. Yes, it is not London. I mean, there's you just really can't qualify that as London. But there is a train from, is it Liverpool Street? Mm. That's direct. Oh, my God. There's a train. I keep telling everyone, ah, there's no train to go. Yeah, no, there's a train. And um, <laughs> I mean, it's just such a small airport that it's hard to mess up. I mean, you basically just walk in, mm. go up an escalator, and you're you're at your gate. I think there was a total of maybe, what, Seven gates, <clears throat> ten gates. I thought you were going to say seven passengers then. <laughs> no, <laughs> surprisingly more than that. <laughs> and I was flying EasyJet mm. to Bilbao. Oh, I'm a big fan of EasyJet. Yeah, and mm. it was a really nice experience. There's a couple restaurants. There's a little, you know, coffee shop. You and know, the flight costs nothing. Oh, I think round trip it was maybe thirty pounds. <laughs> Maybe. I am looking at Ed like shaking his head. But at the same yeah. time, yeah, that's that's a balance. I, I, it's always hard to say, was there ever a real glamour of flying? Because the pictures were shown is first class in the 60s. And, well, of course, first class in the 50s and first class today is still amazing. I mean, yeah. I've been lucky. Guys, I promise you I'll do that once in this show. I've been lucky to fly almost back to back at the end of last year. Cathay first, long haul. Singapore for a super freaking long haul and Emirates a new first. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is like science fiction, right? Like, was there really glamour in this? And maybe it was glamorous because actually relatively fewer people mm. flew. I was there. just gonna say, and you know, because of the seven four seven and you know the business model of Southwest and and EasyJet and Ryanair, it has made it possible for everyone to fly, and that clearly is is a great thing, and, and that that's fantastic. So maybe it is rose tinted glasses watching you know the ad men. Maybe it was never that glamorous, really. But still, don't go to the airport in your pajamas. There's just no need for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's my yes. only gripe with the lack of glamour nowadays. <laughs> it's like, 
yeah. really necessary. Look at the pictures gambling in James Bonds of the 60s. Yeah. And they're all like in tuxedos. And now you go to Vegas or to Macau and see the glamour has disappeared <laughs> from a lot of places. It's changed. Was there one travel in your life that really stands out in your memory? Something that you've done that you said, wow. I mean, there's so many. There's just so many. Well, one that always stands out in my mind, although I actually don't remember it particularly well, I was really young. I was flying by myself as an unaccompanied minor from somewhere in Maine down to New York to Westchester Airport when I was probably seven-ish. And my uncle put me on the flight up in Maine and my dad was meeting me back in New York. And it was probably US Air, maybe one of my few great experiences with US Air. <laughs> um, and I was, it was a super small plane. I don't remember the type of aircraft, but I ended up being the only passenger. Oh, wow. And this was pre 9-11. And so the pilot said, well, I was sitting in the back and looking at a book or something. And he said, well, come up, just, you know, come sit in the cockpit. Oh, wow. So he brings me up to the cockpit again, seven years old. I loved airplanes, but maybe not as much as I do now, clearly, because as soon as we got airborne, I fell asleep. And I slept <laughs> the entire flight <laughs> in the cockpit. And uh, and he had to actually wake me up when we landed and, and walked off the plane. So although I don't remember it, that's a pretty cool experience. Oh, yeah, that is. Well, <laughs> yes. So wow. sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only I could do it again. Dan? I think two stand out for me. One on a similar vein uh, to Elizabeth was as a kid, again, pre-9-11, when I was lucky enough to be kind of brought up to the cockpit. And it's a night flight. I think we were kind of in the middle of the ocean actually flying over towards Barbados, which is where a lot of my family are from. And I just remember like looking at the flight deck and chatting with the the pilots at the time. And, you know, they do that thing where they entertain the kids and, oh, and this button is the best button because it calls the attendant in to give us the tea and coffee. <laughs> and I was, I was just like, that is the funniest joke I've ever heard. Um, and that was, that was really memorable just because that's, you know, one of the few times that you get to kind of be in a cockpit in flight. And then the other one, much less kind of profound, was just I was very, very lucky last year in flying over to Thailand on Qatar. And the first leg was, you know, nothing, nothing extraordinary, but pretty nice being the back in economy. And then I had that that experience where, you know, you, you go to kind of check into the next flight and the boarding pass isn't working. And they said, oh, sorry, we'll just have to move some things around. You're like, oh God, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. I just want to get on the plane. Let's just get there. And so, oh, well, actually we've just bumped you into business class. I was like, oh, wow. Mm. And then you check the plane type and it was the A350, which we said is my favorite plane. And it was the Q suite. It was incredible. And I, I'm sure you won't judge me too much for for enjoying the compliments of the the wine and cocktail bar, even though it was about six a.m. by the time we'd boarded. I, I made the most of that trip, and that was really that was really special. And I think it opened my eyes to the difference between some of these carriers, even at, even at the top end. That was incredible. Six a.m. in Qatar, three a.m. in London. You're fine. Is yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect time. And you have one that's really well. I'm mean, obviously the Concorde one. Was, yeah, yeah. Was pretty yeah. special. But actually, I think probably my first flight, which I think I can remember, which was, I was probably five or six, I think at the time, but it was, um, some of my family were in Northern Ireland. So it was from, I think actually Gatwick to, to Belfast on a, a Vickers Viscount, which was, a an wow. old British airliner flown by British Midland, another long loved and departed airline. But the thing about the Viscount is if you think the A350 has big windows, the Viscount had enormous windows. They were you know, literally from, 
I don't know, probably from your waist to your head height, huge windows. And I was sitting by the window and I felt like I was outside the aeroplane. It was so big compared to the size I was. And it was just an amazing experience. My first time ever flying and I felt, you know, I literally was flying. And it stuck with me all of these years. Wow. They don't have them anymore. No, so. no. Yeah. You see them in museums. Yeah. You can, you can go and have a look at them. But the windows were just absolutely enormous. He's not that old, guys. He just <laughs> pretends to be. No, 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 you're not. You're not. Is there, uh, come on, another question. Is there a livery that you really adore, past or present, And they're all thinking because I never prepared them for these questions. I just started <laughs> really to them, question. right? I mean, the one that jumps out to me is Qantas. Oh. I think Qantas is just that airline. I didn't mention it in my favorite airline comment, but as a child, Qantas was always kind of the most exotic, exciting yeah, airline yeah. in my mind because it's Australia. It's yeah. the side of the world. It's so neat. And the Middle Eastern airlines weren't a thing, so... And it's oh, been quite just, consistent. That red and like white. Yeah. Yeah, Qantas? Is there yeah, another one? Qantas, Qantas would be the one for me. What else? I mean... Don't say Lufthansa. We'll talk about it in a minute. Actually. No, I don't <laughs> think they would be fair. Dan, is there one that stands out? I think now we're on, on this side of the world. Air New Zealand, the the, yeah. the oh, black yeah. yeah, with black. the, with the yeah. leaf. Oh my god, that was always incredible. When I, I remember seeing that a few years back, I was like, wow, really that's want. cool. And you know what? They're stopping yeah. the yeah. London to so LAX. So I think they're stopping maybe June or July. I'm not sure, but I'm looking at trying to fly it once. Oh, yeah, I agree. That one is fantastic. Usually that flight from Heathrow, the Heathrow to LA one, is the gate next to the flight that flies to Washington, Dallas, if you fly United. So I always used to sit and wait for that United flight <laughs> and see the Air New Zealand uh, boarding while we were waiting. And I was just like, ooh, I'd drooling. much rather get on that. <laughs> It is a beautiful livery. I must admit, I have a soft spot now for these retro liveries. I think Brasieros did an amazing job yeah. with both uh, the BRAC and the BEA liveries. And there's something, you know, really classic about those. And I surprised myself at just how, how much I liked them. Because you know, it is very old-fashioned. You don't see, you know, the cheat line anymore. And... You compare it with most of your modern airlines, it's all you know, Euro white with a different <laughs> colored tail, and that's it. And I thought, you know, the BRAC 747 is just gorgeous. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous. I, okay, people always say that, Paul, it's because you're Swiss. You say that uh, the Euro white for me really works on Swiss, Finnair probably as well. Yeah. The, other was, the other airlines, it really feels just lazy. Yeah. Like no imagination. You know, the worst was level, right? But I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the one I particularly, I don't dislike, but I find uninspiring in Singapore Airlines. For such a great airline, I always found this mm. kind of an oddity. It feels kind of passe. Yeah. It needs a, some kind of rejuvenation. So, rejuvenation, how do you like the new, because I know our answer, maybe it's changed. How do you like the new Lufthansa compared to the old one, oh, Elizabeth? I like the old one better. <laughs> I like the old one better. That's not a difficult question to answer. I mean, it's fine. I don't, I don't dislike it. I still think that they kept a lot of the sort of classic Lufthansa look, but I mean, no, it's not the same. It's just not the same. I really like the new one. It works spectacularly well on the 747. Maybe less on the 380, but let's Let's be honest, the 380 is an amazing plane to fly, less so to design. <laughs> <laughs> Lufthansa has also done a great job with some of their retro yeah. liveries. Yeah. Um, their 747 is really mm. nice in the retro. I wonder how much normal people actually pay attention to this. <laughs> oh, probably I mean, not. I think yeah, we're clearly not a normal audience for this. And, you know, we can <laughs> identify just think they're getting honest. an old plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true, actually. Yeah, well, that's probably so. true. I don't know if you've seen that, guys, that uh, lot has complained to Lufthansa saying that now that Lufthansa is all blue with that famous crane, their own crane is 
too close because lot Polish Airlines is also kind of blue. You can add in that mix actually Tarum, which is a Romanian airline, because if you look, they also have a crane. It's also blue and white. <laughs> well, it's not the same. And of course, she would say that because she really loves the crane from Lufthansa. Or they can just bring back the orange, which is fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> the yellow, whatever. You were mentioning uh, Qantas. If you look at nowadays Cathay Dragon and Turkish, there's also a, a trio that is kind of similar. But I mean, come on. An Afghi cannot mistake lot from Lufthansa or Qantas for. From Cathay Dragon. I mean, come on, guys, it's not the same. But it's funny that Lot would actually complain to one of its alliance partners about yeah. this. I, have you seen the new um, Eastern Airlines, the, the rebirth of Eastern Airlines? The reviews are dire, but mm. they have one flight from JFK to. I've lost track of the number Ecuador. of times Eastern Airlines have been reborn. <laughs> How many versions is this? I don't know. They have a 767 300ER. They're planning to do mostly South American routes, if I'm not mistaken. I think the first flight was from Ecuador. Again, the reviews are really, really bad, but check delivery. It's not Euro white. <laughs> Do you... I keep talking to Elizabeth because I know her and I try to make her controversial. She's not for the moment. <laughs> uh, not falling for it. <laughs> so do you fly mostly Star Alliance? So I actually wrote Lufthansa, my so. master's dissertation on airline loyalty and I am the least loyal person ever <laughs> to any airline. Um... I really go by price. Don't you think most people do that? Yeah, I think that that is true. And I also think that with the advent, although they've been around for a while now, of these credit cards where you just sort of pay yourself back with points and it's not tied to an airline. So you're not earning Avios through a BA Amex. You're just earning points and then you can buy whatever you want. I think that that really changed the game too. Like what really is the benefit to being loyal? I mean, yes, you get the status and, and all of that, but... That comes at a price and at a certain number of flights, and that's yeah, pretty inaccessible <laughs> for most people. So I'm I mean, price and destination. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll re-invite you when we do this uh, episode on loyalty, because I believe that European airlines, because of that lack of credit cards that doesn't allow people to easily get status on airlines by simply buying other stuff, I think European airlines should look at most of the models in Asia. A loyalty will mostly be about, if you're loyal to us, we'll remove your luggage charge. Yeah. Mm. We'll uh, ensure you have front row seats. Mm. Stuff like that, which for the normal public is attainable. It's not like a gold and platinum and super diamond status that basically only elite, when I say elite, it's not about money. It's about simply you travel a lot for work. Yeah. Attains. So you're not really loyal. And you guys? Ed, probably your one world. And one world, yeah, Prisper Shareways. And I've, I've been you know, pretty loyal to them. Am I allowed to say you're gold guest list or not? I am gold guest list, yeah. yeah. I'm, go <laughs> I'm gold card for life, which is quite nice. No way. Oh. Yeah. Oh uh, there, is, there is apparently a gold guest list for life, but that's almost, you know, no one can achieve that, surely. Um, but that said, I think you're right. I think in Europe, it, it is a slightly different system. I mean, British Airways, you know, charge, you, even if you're flying business class, they charge you to select a seat mm -hmm. if you're not a member of their, their club. And that's, that's terrible. Insane. It is. At that price? So I think it, it does make sense. You know, if you, if you travel even not that often, I think it's worth it just so... The airline knows who you are and has got a number on you and you're on the, on their radar screen. I think that's that's beneficial. Mm -hmm. So yeah, One World British Airways is me. Same. That's a product of being here in here in London and here yeah. in the UK. It yeah. kind of it kind of makes sense for that at least to be your primary kind of loyalty scheme. And I've been building up states for a little while and I go through peaks and troughs with my my business travel and the past couple of years have been quite good. So I'm up to a, a lowly silver, but I'll, I'll take <laughs> it because I, I enjoy the lounge benefits that come with mm -hmm. that. That is enough to tip me into 
probably going for a one world carrier when it comes to my leisure travel as well. So it's doing its job. And while I do tend to be quite price sensitive, I'm more willing than I thought I would be at spending a little bit more to go on a one world carrier. And then when you look at the airlines, I say are my favorite. Oh, it's Cathay. Mm. <laughs> it's Qatar. I wonder why that is. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. But honestly, they have great airlines. It works both yeah. ways, right? I, I wasn't for the first like three years living in London. I was full Star Alliance mm. and Emirates, obviously. Emirates has always been. It's really the airlines. It was not the fact that I was living in London because actually the downside of not using a hub airline when you're in London, so BA, is that when there's a screw up with a flight, they need to basically fly another plane to catch you and that's super long delays, which BA doesn't have. The advantage, however, is that they treat you better on a loyalty aspects because they say if you're making the effort to not fly BA and fly us, and Lufthansa has been, let's be very honest, I know the head of loyalty has been super kind with with me. I was invited to dinner for the opening of the new lounge in Terminal 2 at Heathrow before its actual opening. So stuff like that, little tidbits of appreciation. So that will never yeah. happen with BA because BA, like, not even in the middle of the crop. I'm somewhere like a yeah. <laughs> number five million over somebody. And I get it. Do you fly mostly economy, I guess? Ed is a mix, I know, because for work, probably you have a mix. We have a quite a clever system here where there's a budget set for each route which is usually just below business class mm. or maybe just around business class, usually premium economy. But if you save money on your, your particular flight, you can bank that and then use that for a future oh. flight. That is clever. So clever. You, know, you, you, you pick and choose. So I end up flying mostly economy in and around Europe and try to fly business class if I'm mm-hmm. doing it intercontinental. Have you been upgraded to anything else that this Qatar Q-suite? Because if you've been upgraded to that, which is probably one of the best seats ever... I mean, currently, maybe A&A, the new, the, the room, the room yeah. apparently is amazing. Maybe not for someone as tall as me, but you will be disappointed in everything. And I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's set the bar pretty high. Yeah, no, I think my past few years of consulting, it, we, we were kind of at the mercy of the corporate booking rules and, and whatever our clients would pay for. And it tended to be economy or premium. So I, I think I got one op up to business while I was premium once. But other than that, it tends to be premium. And then- Never flown premium. Interesting. Really? I've never flown plane in my wow. life. Just because either a client pays business or I fly economy mm. or I fly low cost. I've never flown premium. And the, the I keep repeating that as well. The consistency on premium across different airlines is oh, completely different. Oh, yeah. Crazy different. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely crazy. So uh, because Elizabeth is a fan, Lufthansa. So Lufthansa is late first because they haven't introduced new business class seats they say they want to introduce them with a 777X, which is late, so they're not introducing. They're currently actually simply putting their all seat in their new 350s, so really they're late compared to the competition. Sorry, Lufthansa fans, but for me, it's really an old product. However, what they came up with it when the 777X, whenever that comes, will be introduced, they will introduce something that I find either completely stupid or genius. Business premium. So you'll have the normal business class seat and then you'll have seats in the front. That's what they say in the front of the cabin that will have slightly more privacy, slightly more comfort and offer better service. So they're really dividing even more the number of classes. If Swiss, because Swiss already multiple classes, if Swiss, as part of the Lufthansa group, introduces such a thing, you'll have six classes. I noted them down first, premium business, business, premium economy, economy plus, and classic economy. And soon enough, we'll have economy light and in the cargo. (laughs) So do you really think that it will actually matter to be in a business premium, whatever that means? No, I don't think so. I mean, for me, it's important to have that life flat 
bed. That's all really I'm interested in when it's a business class product. Maybe nicer food. That's that's great. But you know, yeah, airline food is never that much that much better. <laughs> I mean, to me, this this just sounds like a, a rebranding exercise. We didn't want to call it first class, so we'll call it premium business. Yeah. I don't know. Malaysian had done this because they were abandoning mm. first. They just said, oh, what we're going to do with these seats are already there. So they called it business premium. But at least, it's, you know, you have a very different seat. But yeah, I don't know. And is it one of the Middle Eastern carriers? It may be Emirates. You'll, you'll be the expert on this that is introducing or has introduced the business seat without lounge access. So it's almost like a business oh, minus. I feel like I heard about that. You know, yes. this, yeah. Is that is that Emirates? Yeah, the, yeah. the, uh, the super saver. I don't remember the name of it. Super saver. Yeah. yeah, it's a fair class. When you book, you have multiple mm. different business classes. And if you have the super for cheap one, you don't have lounge access. So it's interesting to see that they are innovating a bit and of some are going business plus, some are going business minus. There's some wiggle room there apparently that you know we saw in economy with the classics and the lights and the plus and all that kind of stuff. And but at some point, at some point it will all be solved with NDC, which is the IATA standard, which will allow basically to granularly choose mm. what you want. Mm. There'll be an infinite company. For me, for instance, I mean, I we're boring the audience with that probably. No, you're all av geeks, but I would love <laughs> to have a system where I say, you know what, I really want to lie flat on very long haul flights because also I'm told and I want to sleep. But I really don't care about the food that comes with it. And I don't really care about the lounge that comes with it, to be honest. I have access, so I'm going to use it, but I can be in front of the gate and I'm fine. So if you can just give me the seat and remove everything else, I'll be okay to pay a reduced price for that. I'm not sure they will ever do it because I guess their whole point is to kind of premiumize yourself or something. But I would love to have a bit more granularity. I don't really need all the fluff and five different kinds of champagne that comes with it. I really don't. But do you also think that by pulling all of these little pieces out, it's just an opportunity for them to charge more for each piece? Well, that's what they've done in economy, especially United started, I think, where having like economy light, whatever they called it, is basically kind of forcing you to say, oh, I really, actually, I want a little bit more legroom. So I'm going to get the actual economy or I have no luggage with my come on, another question do you guys check luggage no <laughs> so I'm, I'm heading to Japan next week which I can't wait for um, which a couple of my friends may be listening will, will tell you I've been talking about for ages and they're coming along with me this time and we're actually going skiing so in Niigata wow that's uh, cool we're going up in Niseko Niseko if, wow. if the snowfall improves I hear it's been a bit low recently but they were quite surprised when I said actually I'm not taking any not taking any check luggage I advise you don't either we'll be fine we're going to hire the stuff when we get there and for me it's just about that feeling of you leave the aircraft you're done you can just escape straight out of the airport there's no worry about did the bags arrive did they not having said that i've never had a bad experience with baggage not arriving but then again most of the time i just tend to go hand baggage only i try not to but but sometimes i have done and i have had my bags go on on great journeys around the world <laughs> without me i have had bags go completely missing and then got new sets of luggage from the airlines as a result of that but i try not to if i can avoid it i'll try not to for the exactly the same reasons dan said it's it's nice just to be able to leave the airport well maybe i'm going to be a little like anti sexist here or something but i'm a girl so i do check back <laughs> i just do i mean yeah i try not to but i would say for any trip more than about four days I'm probably going to check a bag, especially if it's a direct flight. I don't worry too much about losing them. I've never had a bag get lost, knock on wood. A fully lost? don't think I ever had. Or it even happens. delayed of any sort or delivered to a hotel or anything like that. So 
that's mostly a fear that actually happened. It happened to me once, but it's a fear because usually I do these trips when I stay two days in one place. And I'm like, mm. the luggage will keep just following me. Yeah. <laughs> and I never get it. In but, that case, I would be more inclined to carry on. But then again, airlines also kind of forcing you not to have carry on on like, like super small sizes. And actually, for once, Emirates is very bad at that. The size of the carry on in economy is the same size as Ryanair. It's not great to me. Wow. Yeah, Did you ever have the feeling on your luggage on delivery at the belt? <laughs> I said a few episodes ago that it's sometimes a bit of a joke that the luggage is, there's one or two arriving at first and then you wait for 25 minutes, there's nothing else and then yeah. the, the bulk of the luggages do arrive. Are they oh. all saying yes? Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I heard you say that on that other episode where you were like, well, they just get one bag out so they can say, we get bags out in 10 minutes or in however long. Yeah. And then It's one of those niggly things that, <sighs> that you notice when you travel a lot. I, I notice this at Terminal 5. Mm. The crew bags <clears throat> come out first. Mm-hmm. And I always think, that's not right. <laughs> the crew bag come out first, and then everybody else's bag comes out. Whether you've got a priority tag or not, it doesn't matter. Ethro doesn't care about priority tags, that's for sure. I'm not beholden to hanging around the baggage belts too much these days, because <laughs> I just sprint out with my backpack. But on the odd occasion that I do have to check something in, yeah, you do tend to see a bit of a cluster, then there's a bit of a gap. And then the rest, yeah. And apparently it's not only in the UK. We had a Matt Graham on Facebook who was very happy that we said that because uh, in Munich, and I love Munich Airport, he said six random bags appeared initially and the remaining luggage did not appear until 35 minutes later, oh, which yeah. you like. Wow. Well, and for anyone that travels in the, in the US frequently, the what is it? Global entry and TSA pre-check, that's all great stuff. And I have global entry and it's wonderful. However... You get through before everyone else, but then you still have you. You're just standing there watching everyone else come through because you're still waiting for your bag. So if there's any way or anyone out there who can link baggage to global entry, and uh, you could be off the plane and out of the airport in about five minutes. Uh, secret is carry on. So I know. That's I know. It. I guess that's the thing. Someday I'll learn. So because we're in the UK, let's bore our international audience for three minutes. <laughs> Flybe. Flybe was on the verge of bankruptcy for years now, been bought by Virgin about a year ago, and was about to be recalled, renamed, rebranded Virgin Connect, I think, mm-hmm. saved by a controversial system. I don't want to, again, bore all the audiences with that, but the UK didn't save Monarch, the UK didn't save Thomas Cook. They're saving Flybe through part of our taxpayers' money, or at least a system that will impact our taxpayers' money. What do you think? Have you flown them? I have. And I think the reason potentially why they have been saved is that they do provide this regional service Mm. to lots of airports that they are pretty much the only airline that flies there. So I can sort of see the rationale that you might want to say Flybe where you wouldn't have saved Monarch or Thomas Cook. And I think, you know, we were talking about Heathrow and British Airways. We lost BMI a few years ago. You know, to lose Flybe would just, you know, be a real competitive problem, I think. It swings and roundabouts and it's, it's complicated politically, but I, I'd be very sad to see Flybe go under. I think they provide a, a really useful service. Dan seems in agreement. Yeah, yeah I've, I've flown them a few times, um, some intra-UK regional routes and a couple of times over to to Europe. And I think they do provide that really useful service, even just personally, you know, I, I studied at university in Exeter down in the, the far Southwest of, of England and flew up to visit 
some some good friends of mine up in Newcastle. That on a train journey would have taken basically a whole day, um, but within you know less than an hour, really, you can you can hop up on a, a little turboprop. Yeah, it's a complicated story. The US have subsidies on routes. This is not something completely out of uh, completely new. But I understand Willie Walsh was super furious about it. Though Branson, remember Richard, you said in 2009 that it would be unacceptable to bring money to a competitor like BA. And now you're like, oh, of course, you have to give us money. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's complicated. Uh, and at the end of the day, I don't want to see other jobs again lost in the aviation, in the airline industry. So, yeah. But I would at the same time agree with those who say that ADP, which is our duty tax on flying here in the UK, is primarily a climate, at least that's what they say, a climate one. And uh, encouraging people to flying instead of taking a train is not maybe the best use of that money. But yeah, I understand. By the way, Willie Walsh is leaving in March, I think. He's, he's leaving IAG, the parent company. And what a chief exec he was. It's not going to be Alex Cruz who's going to replace him. <laughs> because I think in between the data breach and the IT meltdowns and other strikes, and I think he doesn't really have the... <laughs> The love of the board anymore, but apparently he's going to be the chief exec of uh, Iberia that could replace him. Anyway, last question before we move to the airport that I haven't been to, so it will be Elizabeth and Ed to talk about it because they've both been to. It's a controversial question or not, I don't know. Would you fly the 737 MAX when and if it comes back in the air? Do look at me like super shy now? Who wants to take <laughs> I mean, I definitely would. There you go. We were saying a moment ago on a break that if and when it comes back, which could be a good amount of time from now, I do believe that they will have figured out what they need to figure out to make mm. it safe to fly on. I don't think that that airplane's going to re-enter service with anything mm. that's not safe. Mm. Um, I just think that the amount of time that it will take to get it safe <laughs> is questionable. And I wonder what that's going to look like, if ever, honestly. I mean, I, I agree. I think it, it will come back because it's it's just too big a project and it's too important for Boeing for it to fail. And I'm sure when it when it does come back, finally, it will be safe. And, and I will I will fly on it, I'm sure. And Prashia Airways have ordered 200 of them yeah. to fly out yeah. of Gatwick, so I'm almost yeah, certain. Yeah, Willie Walsh was a 737 pilot. It, it, must have been a good, <laughs> it must have been a really good deal they got. But, you know, like Elizabeth, it, it could be a long a long time to wait, I think. Yeah, I think it, it's one of those things that, ironically, especially as av geeks, we, we know that planes are super safe and the, the odds of anything happening are super super slim but naturally we're so much more aware of the issues and have read all the articles and all the exposés about but all this stuff that came out means that we are probably a little bit more hesitant than some as well but i think to your point elizabeth as and when it does finally come back into service due to the extreme levels of scrutiny that have been placed upon the whole industry really rather not just uh, not just boeing and the 737 there can't surely, touch wood, be, be any chance of, of any hiccups here. And I, I think it's probably going to be safer than perhaps any other airplane in the sky because it would have had so much scrutiny placed on it. So while I would perhaps be a little hesitant, I, I imagine I will definitely end up flying it at some point. Do you think it should be rebranded? Yes. I think <laughs> like noisy Yes, yes. I, th I think it almost certainly will be rebranded. Yeah. Actually, uh, Stephen Udvarhazy was one of the most important people in uh, leasing uh, aircrafts. And they also have like a shit ton of uh, 737 Max in order. Says that, yeah, the name has been damaged and it has to be rebranded. It probably, if he says that with the weight he has, 
no matter what Boeing thinks at some point, and others actually, listeners are saying the same, it will have to be rebranded. I hope not the whatever 8820 or something they're calling it for <laughs> some of the aircraft we've seen in parking lots. <laughs> well, but, I, I never thought it was a particularly good name anyway. I mean, who, yeah. who names yeah. an airline Max? Well, it sounds like Apple goes that. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> the, the 737 Pro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, without much further ado, let's, uh, because ooh, we've done a, quite a long show. I love it. I could talk for hours with these guys, <laughs> but they also need to get on with their own lives. Here in London, it's, uh, it's well, for once, I appreciate that we're doing that in an evening. I usually record my podcast in the morning, which means for me, it's going to be a beer after this. So I'm looking forward to the beer. But before, DCA. So DCA, I've never been to DCA. The one thing I know, however, the reason I would like to visit it is because Terminal 1 and what they call, I think, the South Hangar or something, the building is magnificent. It was built in an era where they knew how to properly do fantastic buildings and they're protected, I think, as well. But besides that, I don't know anything about it. So maybe we'll start with Elizabeth because it used to be your home yeah. airport, so you know it well. But I know that Ed, when we were deciding which airport to cover today, because as you know, guys, I always say the guests have the airport. It was a bit difficult because I had three guests. And I wanted to be honest, to avoid uh, Heathrow because we do it so many times. So Dan was outvoted. So next time it's going to be his <laughs> when you come back. So I know that Ed has a soft spot. That's the term he uses, soft spots for it. But let's start with Elizabeth. Tell us all about DCA. Yeah, so I sort of mentioned it before, but I think that one of the, the sticking points that people always talk about with DCA is that it has about seven different names. Ed, I don't know, what do you tend to refer to it as? I tend to call it DCA or maybe Reagan, but okay. mostly DCA. See, I would say DCA or national. national. I don't know. There's a lot of debate in the DC area about what exactly it should be called. This is also very maybe local because I'm yeah. always, and I know, I'm sorry, I'm taking a slight tangent here from an airport that is up north. For me, it always strikes me how when I land in... GFK with a US airline, they say Kennedy. Yeah. You would never say Kennedy at BA. You would never said Kennedy. At, maybe it's that's like, more local. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So just other things about DCA. I mean, it's located in Virginia. It's not actually located in DC. DC is so small. DC is so small. <laughs> it's right on the river. I think I love DCA as an airport because I think it's it's really accessible. It's easily connected by the metro. You can drive there. There's buses. It's really got as far as as far as the DC area is concerned, it's about as well connected as you can get. And it's basically broken down into two terminals, B and C, but they're basically just one. And then A, which I think is the, the terminal that you were referring to, Paul. Yes. So it's a hub for American Airlines. And I think one of the cool things, I actually did a little bit of research on it before I <laughs> came on this podcast. And uh, one of the neat things about it is that, well, neat, I don't know, some people would argue otherwise, is that it actually, per government ruling, has a restriction on the distance that flights can fly from DCA. Uh, is it like LaGuardia? They have the same thing, I think. It's, it's 2,000 kilometers, oh, wow. give or take, is the max distance that you can go out of DCA. And apparently the reason for that is to drive traffic to Washington, Dulles, and also oh. Baltimore, Washington, which are the two big international airports in the area. Oh, wow. And I think there's been a lot of controversy about it because obviously being DC, there's a lot of senators and politicians <laughs> who want yeah. to be able to fly from the most local airport probably DCA, to their home airport, which may be outside of the 2,000 kilometer limit. Mm. So yeah, it's sense. continued to get pushed and pushed. But right now, that's about the distance that, that it sits at. So meaning you don't see a lot of international. It's no, really none, like a purely, no, purely domestic. Canada, um, I believe there's, there's a couple flights to Canada. Okay. I think there's, there's definitely an Alaska flight to 
California, and there might be an American flight as well that goes out there. But it's really limited to um, East Coast, Chicago, Minneapolis, Florida, Texas. I mean, a lot of those. And how is it as an airport? How is it as a passenger? Is it an airport that you like? Is it an airport that you dislike? Is it only because it looks beautiful? Because even like uh, you said, it uh, does look beautiful. Terminal B and C again. Uh, then I only rely on pictures. Inside looks pretty cool. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, and the modern terminals are amazing. I mean, they are relatively modern. They're, they're built, I guess, in the 1990s, and they're they're being expanded. For me, the old terminal is just beautiful. It has all the the original Art Deco features, and it was refurbished very, very well. It's not particularly busy. It's I think it's just Air Canada and Southwest. I think fly Frontier. Out Frontier maybe. Yeah. So it's not it's not very busy. So it's always quite quiet. You can wander around and and have a look. But for me, the charm is that it's a relatively small airport. It has some way the feel of maybe London City, but a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. So it has a small runway. It's built out on an island into the Potomac. And because of its very close proximity to, to D.C., the flight path in and out of the airport is is amazing. There's a thing called the uh, the river visual approach that you you literally have to fly along the Potomac River and nice. turn left, turn right, turn left. And it, it feels, not that I have ever done so, it feels like you're landing on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Up until the very last minute, all you see is water and then suddenly you're on the ground. Wow. And that's really cool. It's also one of the shortest runways, I believe, in the East Coast. And yeah, the US, like 7,000 feet, I think, is the longest runway. So that's pretty, that's pretty short. Also, that limits also the type of aircraft. Absolutely, yeah. And for me, one of the things I always love about it is that accessibility Elizabeth mentioned. The last time I flew out of DCA, it was a day trip, uh, and I was staying in, in Washington at the time. I was able to cycle to the airport using the, the <laughs> rental bike yeah. scheme and just, you know, arrive on my bicycle, drop it off, go... Uh, uh, check in. Uh, Did you have a carry-on? I had <laughs> just a backpack. Oh, there you go. And uh, I was able to try out Ben's Chili Bowl, which oh, is... Oh, yeah, uh, I was going to mention that. Yeah, it, which is something that Elizabeth... <laughs> yeah, it's much more detailed. It's educate me. What is that? So Ben's Chili Bowl is a DC institution. It's a restaurant that I think the original restaurant is on U Street in the city in Washington. And it's basically hot dogs with chili on top and beans. And they are absolutely amazing. <laughs> you can also get fries and everything else loaded with chili and that's really good too. But they opened oh, a wow. spot in the airport <laughs> pre-security so you don't even need to be flying. Oh wow. And it is absolutely delicious. I can't say it's the best food to eat before getting on a flight. <laughs> but <laughs> barring that, I do recommend trying it. Can you bring it on board, you think? Or is it like really oh, you can. not polite towards the others? You have <laughs> such a... I think it's a bit like bringing McDonald's on board or something. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. kind of... how the TSA treats chili yeah. as a liquid paste. <laughs> a <laughs> gel. <laughs> gel. Explosive? Oh, yeah. That's, that's not... <laughs> it is delicious. So though. go on, sorry, I interrupted you. Um, and I, I don't know if other DC area airports have this, but I know you see it at DCA a whole lot are these honor flights. And I don't know if in Europe, if that's a thing, if you kind of know what that is. So it's run through the USO and they fly veterans to D.C. free of charge so that they can go and see the different memorials Memorial. in the area. And so there's wow. 
I mean, virtually any time of day that you're at DCA, there will be an honor flight arriving. That's Um, very nice. And it's just a lovely little ceremony that they set up. They have balloons. A lot of passengers will gather at the gate and just start clapping. Um, And some of these gentlemen, you know, the service members, they're they're old, you know, and they're in wheelchairs. and, And it's just very touching to see them being welcomed to the Capitol like that. Oh, wow. It's always a treat of DCA. So would you recommend it as a layover as airport or would you say, because it's so close to the city, get out, get that, what, what's the name again? Chili? What, what's Ben's Chili Bowl. So that's after security. So you have to get out to get this and maybe go to, I don't know, the National Mall or somewhere. Or? Yeah, I think it's so accessible to the city that I would not recommend it for a layover. In fact, it's not a 24-hour airport. So oh. um, it closes at a certain point and they would kick you out anyway. <laughs> So go enjoy DC. Ed, uh, do you have the same advice? Oh, absolutely. Advice? I agree. It, it's not a great airport for layovers. I mean, partially the design that you have these peers, concourses, I guess they call them, which are, which are airside, which are very small. You, know, you basically go and get on your airplane uh, and there isn't really much space. So, and, and the accessibility is amazing. For an American airport to be able to just jump on a, on a metro train and, and be in you know, the center of the city in happens. five minutes, mm. it never happens. It never so happens. make the most of it. Well, there you go, Dan. We need to go and try it out because uh, <laughs> neither of us have for that Chile thing. But I want to especially do that approach you mentioned. Oh, it's that's, fantastic. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's really good. I need to find an excuse. No, where am I kidding? I don't need an excuse. I just need to book a flight to just go there. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for having done that with me, for us, for the listeners. As I said at the top of the show, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to try to gather a bigger group next time. I can go up to probably six microphones. We're four today. But even though not everybody is on the mic, I might even do something bigger at some point. But bear with me with the traveling. Alex will be back at some point as well. So, guys, I really want to thank you. Maybe as a closing, I mean, you can say a closing statement if you want to be very official. (laughs) But if anyone wants to reach out to you, I think you all are on Twitter or somewhere. Yeah, I had to open up my Twitter to find out what my Twitter handle was. (laughs) But I promise I am on there and I am active. You Um, are. You are. underscore Elizabeth underscore Lex, L-E-X. So, yeah, mostly airplane stuff on there. But no, thank you, Paul, for having me on here. I've been listening to this podcast since probably, when did you start it? 2015? Correct. Okay, so since 2015. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Um, no. And that was, I was living a completely different life from the, what I'm living now. So it's really seen me through a lot. So it's an honor to be on here. Honor is mine. Yeah, thank you, Paul, as well. Um, if anybody wants to keep an eye on my travels and, and has a particular interest in Japan, I post a lot about that. Um, I'm at DJ Fost, F-O-S-T, on Instagram and Twitter. And looking forward to, to coming back on in a future episode, hopefully. You will have to tell us all about Japan. I'm also going, but after you, <laughs> too bad, too bad. I would have loved to meet you there for some, not chili, some, <laughs> some yakitori. Ed? Yes, uh, well, I'm Ed Parsons pretty much on everything, fortunately. So you should be able to find me Twitter, Instagram. I have my website, which if you want to hear about my uh, great trip around the world to visit every retired Concorde, you can go and do that. That was a... Sorry, what? I didn't uh, know that. Whoa, hold, that on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We we're not finishing this before you tell us a little bit more about Yeah, this. well, that's a whole nother show, I think. <laughs> I, I decided it's my midlife crisis to take a year and visit every Concorde that has been put into a museum somewhere. Wow. Around, done I've done it. I did it in a year. Which was very entertaining. I got some strange looks from people explaining what I was doing. But that was great. So you can find out about that, edparsons.com. That's my, my blog. And um, it's been a real pleasure. It's, it's lovely to be amongst uh, people that understand the way that you see the world. Yeah? <laughs> us, us frequent travelers you know, may, may seem odd people, but um, 
Uh, it's great. Thank you very much for, for, for coming. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say thank you so much for hosting us again here at Google in London. It's fantastic. Fantastic to meet you all. And I'm really going to do this again. And Ed, I'm taking you up on this. I might actually do a special on you telling us all about just <laughs> yeah. owning all the concords <laughs> because I, I had no idea. Uh, look, guys, this is how I do. I do no research whatsoever and I end up in this situation exactly a minute before closing the show. Oh, my God. Anyway, thank you, guys. Next travels for me is going to be twice Dubai, maybe in New York, but hopefully I'll see you in Tokyo, everyone, along with Dan. Bye-bye, guys. Happy travels. Safe travels. Safe travels. Safe travels.